have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. experiencing food shortages, supply chain breakdowns continue to have a domino effect on everything, especially food production. Farmers can't plant as many crops now because of fertilizer shortages, forced regulations, and of course, high fuel prices. This will cause more painful food shortages when we run out of the food we're eating now. You know, food takes time to grow. So when farmers don't plant, well, months later, we don't eat. That's why you need to prepare for an increasing number of food shortages. And the best way is to invest in ready-hour emergency food from My Patriot Supply. It's a perfect hedge against skyrocketing prices and shortages. Right now, save $50 on a four-week food kit from My Patriot Supply. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and get your $50 savings on a four-week emergency food kit that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's preparewithsouthernsense.com. Those who know what's coming are getting prepared now. Well, if you don't want to type in that whole big thing saying preparewithsouthernsense.com and you're on my website, which is Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense, as in commonsense.com, you can easily click on My Patriot Supply and go directly to the website and get your $50 savings. As I'm telling you now, those who know what's coming are getting prepared right now. Shouldn't you? Prepare with southern-sense.com. That's 
southern-sense.com. Click on My Patriot Supply. Do it now. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, Global Patriot Nation, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeart, Facebook, YouTube, oh, the heck with it. I don't even know where I am anymore. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the least most, just the radio chickadee, Annie. And my guest co-host is the one, the only, the most infamous anti-AOC person in the world, <laughs> former congressman you, out of the great state of, of Florida, Ted Yoho. Good afternoon, Ted. How are you, Ted? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me on, Annie. You do a great job, and I, I, I know your lister, listeners appreciate you, and uh, they look forward to getting to the message, especially today's show. Uh, you've got a great lineup, yes. as always. So, Well, we, we've got a lot to talk about and a lot of great friends uh, to join us. We've got a new guest coming on, J.B. Fred Aberling. Uh He's got a new book out called 90 Degree Turn, Remaking Federal Government as If. From big, bulky, and misguided to lean, decentralized, and relevant. If only this is a dream come true. And this is the weekend of our 9-11 anniversary. 21 years ago, this Sunday, our nation was attacked in the worst, most horrific manner uh, by Muslim terrorists. So 9-11 is this Sunday. We are going to have uh, Vice President to Tunnel to Towers Foundation Christy Kernan Boreal. Uh, she's also the author of the Discovering Heroes series, which you can get up on Tunnel to Towers. And uh, we are going to have close off the show with our guest from the Heritage Foundation returning, Sarah Parshall Perry. She's the senior legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Say that three times fast with your mouth full. I bet you can't do it. <laughs> anyway. That's right, and that's a great organization. Yes, yes. And I have to say that um, when my husband passed away, I put down in lieu of flowers to make donations to T2T.org. And a lot of people did step up to the plate and make those donations. And uh, I want to thank everyone. I know it's been over a year, but I have said thank you to every last person who made the donation because they were, they were so nice, T2T, to send me the list. And in case I didn't have the address, the address to personally send a thank you card. So, yes, I deeply appreciate it. It's a a, um, charity that comes very, very close to my heart. I lost three friends that day of the 72 uh, law enforcement officers that perished in the towers that day rescuing people. Three were friends of mine. But uh, today is today, and now we move on and move forward. Ah, so we've got a lot to talk about today, Ted. A lot that's happening out there from crazy, creepy Uncle Joe's speech. (laughs) I'm going to get banned on YouTube again. <laughs> yeah, really. But I tell you what, that speech needs to be talked about in depth. Um, that that was a scary speech. Oh, yes, it was. Very, very scary. Uh, talk about, on one hand, when he became president in his inaugural, he's talked about uniting this nation to make it great and wonderful, blah, 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 blah. And then the most divisive, the most hateful speech I have ever heard. I don't think the Ku Klux Klan could have gotten any worse than he did. Um, and that's saying a right. lot. And I'm probably going to get banned on YouTube again. So anyone wondering, last week's show got taken down off of YouTube. 
Thank you very much. I'm famous. I'm somebody. I get banned on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You you just can't make these things up. You really, really can't. Oh, man. But that said, you really can't. Go ahead. No, no, you really can't. But that said, uh, so we move forward along. People know that every single show, Ted, we start off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And sometimes there are situations where you can't do it to just one individual. You have to do it for all. And since this is the weekend of 9-11, the dedication is going to go out to the 9-11 in the memory of those who perished and those who fought to save the lives. And this is from IJR.com, and it's titled, A survivor of 9-11 remembers what happened the day of the attacks. And it reads, A survivor of the September 11 attacks is speaking out about what he remembers that day. 21 years ago, David Pevinetti worked for a large bank at the time that was based out of North Carolina. He was sitting in a meeting on the 81st floor of the World Trade Center's North Tower when he felt the room shake. Paventi told Fox News Digital that he assumed it was an earthquake because the buildings shifted one way and then back the other, then it started to shake. I started to go under the table because I didn't want the light to fall on me, but everyone rapidly started exiting the room, he said. Paventi said he remembers hearing someone yell, a plane hit the building, as people were going to the stairs. In this stairwell, There were not a lot of people coming from upstairs. Tells you what was going on a few flights up, he said. He said he got down to the 70th floor. The narrow stairwell was congested, and he remembers how eerily quiet the atmosphere was. Not as many people were talking. Then, on his two-way pager, Paventi got the news that a plane had hit the tower, and shortly after... He was also told that a second plane had hit the South Tower in an apparent terrorist attack. A couple of times we'd sit there, and we'd look at each other thinking, should we try another stairwell? Paventi said about devising a plan to escape the building with his co-workers. He explained they decided to stay at the stairwell when they saw that it was moving. There was one point when everyone got over so the firemen could run up. Here we were all trying to get out, and all these guys coming up in full gear carrying hoses. I couldn't imagine running up to this fire, running upstairs and knowing you still had 40 to 50 flights to go, he said. Paventi said when he finally was able to reach the lobby, all the lights were out, which caused the emergency lights to come on. There was also water on the floor. Looking outside, it looked like a scene from Die Hard. Windows were blown out. There was glass everywhere, he explained. As he exited to the courtyard, he heard people yelling at him, Don't look, just run. We started running uptown, and I remember looking up and watched as the first tower just dropped in on itself. My co-worker had just gotten a hold of his wife, and the last thing she heard from him was, Holy shit! Before the phone cut out, he said. Viventi and his co-worker were able to make it out safely. 
He then decided to hitchhike to his co-worker's brother's home on Long Island. Vaventi was also able to get a rental car to return to North Carolina the next day. 21 years later, there has been an effort to make sure that the future, of gen- future generations don't forget th- that historic day. Frank Stiller lost his brother Stephen, a New York City firefighter in the Twin Tower attacks on Line 11, and he is now the CEO of Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Stiller told Fox and Friends that the first mission of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation and why they started is to make sure that we never forget what happened that day and to honor the heroes. He has announced that the foundation has now a 9-11 Institute where they created a curriculum which will be available in all 50 states to make sure that our next generation will be taught what happened that day. The article is written by Rebecca Gazelle. And this is something I wrote on September 11, 2015, seven years ago. I revised it last night with the least amount of edits possible. And I wrote, Sunday, a new generation will watch as millions of Americans pause at 10 a.m. to remember 21 years ago today, the worst attack on American shores since Pearl Harbor in 1941. Some will understand and give respect to the ceremonies. Many others will rush through their workday as if it was just another day. Then there will be those of us who will pause in silence, in prayer, in remembrance of those we lost and the innocents forever gone. We were warned many times and we failed to listen. Planes were hijacked and Americans singled out. The Achilles Laurel Cruz liner was hijacked and Adam Klinghoffer, a disabled wheelchair-bound American, was executed. The Iranian Revolution and over 400 days of American hostages with an American colonel executed, and we still did not listen. The German disco targeted because American service men and women danced there. Americans died, we cried, and no one listened. The Kobar Tower, the USS Cole, the Kenyan Embassy, and the Twin Tower bombings in February of 1993, and so many other attacks. And still, we did not listen. No one would speak the words Islamic terrorism. No one would admit that another nation or group would be so bold to attack the United States of America. The signs were all there. The voices were shouting, the warnings here at home and abroad How could our leaders be so blind? We elected them, trusting in their judgment to keep us safe. But they didn't have all the best intentions for their fellow Americans and the nation. We thought so. We believed self-interest and power struggles would not trump our national interest. We were wrong. On Tuesday, September 11, 2001, Like many other Americans, my husband and I awoke to a bright, sunny day without a major care in the world living our daily lives. 
Within a short time, with eyes glued to the TV, we watched our world forever turn upside down. At 8.46 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, a reporter was doing a fluff piece of what I'll never remember, and a shadow in the shape of a jetliner flew low and what looked like behind the back of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Where did the plane go? It never appeared on the other side. Why? Speculation from TV talking heads abounded across the screen. Was it a private plane with engine trouble? Reports of a plane strike began to ripple across the news report. We sat glued to the couch. As news crews zoomed in on the Twin Towers, at 9.06 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, a second plane soared into the screen and like a missile struck the South Tower. An image forever seared into the mind of Americans and billions worldwide. While the world watched many in horror and our enemies in glee, and the events unfolded the towers, at 9.37 in Washington, D.C., another passenger liner flew into the Pentagon. Is America under attack? Were the reporters, those were the reporters and commentators' questions. Really? After the second plane, you need to ask that? Then a fourth plane was reported missing and off the radar, and we soon learned it crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, at 10.03 a.m. Five hijackers crashed American Airlines Flight 11 into the north facade of the World Trade Center's North Tower, 1 WTC. Another five hijackers crashed United Airlines Flight 175 into the south facade of the South Tower, 2 WC. Five hijackers flew American Airlines Flight 1, Flight 77 into the Pentagon. A fourth flight, United Airlines Flight 93, under the control of four hijackers, crashed near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, southeast of Pittsburgh. 93 cockpit voice recorder revealed crew and passengers tried to seize control of the plane from the hijackers after learning through phone calls that flights 11, 77, and 175 had been crashed into buildings that morning. Once it became evident to the hijackers that the passengers might regain control of the plane, the hijackers rolled the plane and intentionally crashed it. The attacks resulted in the deaths of 2,996 people, including the 19 hijackers. The 2,977 victims included 246 on the four planes from which there were no survivors. 2,006 106 in the World Trade Center and in the surrounding area, 125 in the Pentagon. Nearly all of those who perished were civilians, with the exception of 72 law enforcement officers, 343 firefighters, and 55 military personnel who died in the attacks. After New York, New Jersey lost the most state citizens, with the city of Hoboken having the most citizens that died in the attacks. More than 90 countries lost citizens on the September 11th attacks. It took over four decades of coordinated attacks, which culminated on 9-11-2001, with an additional 2,996 deaths to finally name our enemy Islamic terrorists. Today, 
men and women who responded to the scenes as either first responders, rescuers, and in recovery efforts are dying as a result of injuries or exposure to toxic elements. The death toll continues to, to rise as a result of Islamic terrorists. Since 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, an estimated four to 5,000 first responders and military men and women totaling somewhere around 7,000 have passed. Let us not disgrace their memories or their surviving families, friends, and comrades by forgetting. Today, let us stand strong and shout out, never again. Let our voices rise loud and strong, not of course just our nation or the hallowed field of our heroes or halls of power, but across the globe. We do not forget, and justice will prevail. Let their lives be not in vain as we fuel the fire of righteousness. God bless America. Long may she stand proud and strong in freedom and liberty. Let us remember. Amy, that was well, well said, and the passion was, you could feel it over the, over the airwaves. Thank you. I will close out the dedication with a song by my friend Todd Ellen Harrington, who wrote, he wrote this specifically in remembrance of 9-11, is My Name is America. We dedicate the show to all of the men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. And we dedicate it to the brave men and women that serve this nation from its magnificent birth through today and into our hopeful future. May God bless each and every one.
fathers gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power. But their vicious deeds become my finest Let me finish my spiel. <laughs> Up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeart, Facebook. Oh, heck with it. I just got blown out of the water. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-Sense.com. We're live currently up on Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and also on our homepage, which is Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-Sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, or the least most, just the radio chicken tea, Annie, with my guest co-host, the one, the only, the infamous Congressman Ted Yoho from Florida. Good afternoon, Ted. I've lost my mind. Good afternoon. <laughs> great to be on, Annie. Thanks. That was a great tribute uh, you did. And look forward to talking to Mr. Everling. Uh, mm. Yes, uh, we have with us the author of a new book out, 90 Degree Turn, Remaking Federal Government from Big, Bulky, and Misguided to Lean, Decentralized, and Relevant, Fred Everling. How are you doing, Fred? Very good. Sorry for my... Coming on as I did. But thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You could tell I'm not too skilled in this art. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. I've had to train quite a few people. (laughs) You're next in line. Yeah. Well, we learn best through embarrassment, don't we? 
Oh yes, oh absolutely. <laughs> the more embarrassed, the more you we embarrass be... you, the more you learn. <laughs> yeah, I'm really good at that. Be willing to be bad. Yeah, be willing to be bad before you can be good. I suppose. Isn't that a song? <laughs> I think I don't it know. is. <laughs> it should be. Oh man. Uh, Man, you wrote an excellent book about how we can turn our our federal government around and involving state and local. And right after I finished the very last chapter and I finished my notes on on your interview today, I turned around and someone uh, in my tea party had sent me a video of a county council committee meeting. And boy, I just my my head exploded. My head exploded. County Council, when they see me sitting here, they go, oh, shit. <laughs> what, what are we in for now? Oh, boy. I've, I've already got my guns locked and loaded. And I I was thinking about a lot of what you wrote in your book. And um, you come at it from an interesting perspective because you were one of those. And I, I, I'm not going to call you a parasite, but you were one of the many that just sucked out of the government. <clears throat> Our taxpayer funds. Yeah for some yeah. cockamamie uh, things. Tell us about your program. I, I was a parasite, I'm sorry, your background. <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it to your face, but I will now. <laughs> Tell us about your background and how you came to have this epiphany on how to uh, revolutionize our government. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um, <clears throat> I went to Washington, D.C. in 1975 uh, to go to American University to get a master's degree. I wanted to go into the foreign service. My parents had taken me to Europe in 71. I was thrilled. I was bit by the bug, if you will. Went back during my junior year, studied at the University of Vienna, um, and really was thrilled by it. And I Came back to America, finished my undergraduate studies, and was looking forward to getting into the Foreign Service, whether that was the Department of State or CIA or other agencies. So I went to D.C. with that purpose in mind, and very early in my program, I was introduced to a philosophy that really just kind of blew my mind. Now, this is obviously 1975, but what they were professing very clearly, very openly, very simple to comprehend it was nothing opaque about it was to how to spend money that that was the key to being in the federal government with spending money don't make don't solve the problem make it bigger uh and i talk about i relay that story in the book right um so (laughs) this is what was being taught and i to me it's just like no i i don't get that you mean government's not about being efficient and getting things done So I did not pursue my graduate studies much further, and instead I became a salesman. And I went to work for a tech company at the time by the name of Control Data Corporation, a fantastic company, no longer with us, out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, though. 60,000 people in 1980, a pioneer in uh, disk drive storage technology. But anyway, I went with them to work on selling – what we called cybernet or uh, time-sharing services. Do you remember any of that, or you're probably too young? Actually, I but learned on I remember punch machines. <laughs> I learned yeah, on yeah. punch. Okay, good. Good for you. So um, just dated myself. So this is what brought me. <laughs> that was my entree into the federal government. 
Um, and then I was in D.C. for about 15 years, I think, and moved to Europe with uh, in support of the U.S. Army Europe when we were right-sizing after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And uh, that was in, ni- in 91, 92. And that was really an interesting program. The only time I've seen our government right-size anything, frankly, and I was happy to be part of it. Um, so anyway, this has always stayed with me. And a few years ago, I was reading Startup Nation Israel, and they told the story in the book about the epiphany that took place at Intel and uh, Intel's R&D facility in Tel Aviv, Israel, was trying to communicate to the guys in headquarters in, I think, Cupertino, California with Intel, that they had an architectural issue, that they needed to change the thinking and the, and the processor to overcome heat, essentially. And uh, so the Israelis had a solution. And the guys in California just wanted to keep going down the same path of megahertz. But that was not, that was a problem. And the Israelis understood it before their colleagues in California. But eventually they came around, California did, and Intel got on a new path. That was the 90 degree turn, what they called the, ni- the, the right turn, quote unquote. They, and Intel became called the right turn. Uh, to make this radical change in their thinking and the architecture. And it allowed them to survive. There's a lot of competition today in their space, but it allowed them to survive. The result of that story, by the way, was was the Pentium chip, which you may recall. Wow. Yeah, a lot of, so, a lot of computers still have yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So this story kind of stayed with me, and then came the lockdown, <clears throat> and I had time to dig deep into it and start asking questions like, how big is the federal government? I was shocked to see we really don't know. How many laws do we have? We don't know. We really don't. I mean, and if you read the reports that go into defining the government, written by the Office of Management and Budget and Office of Personnel Management, there are beautiful documents. If you have a love of overhead and waste and bureaucracy, a lot of pages that say nothing. And this is the federal government. And I don't blame anybody. I don't, it's not a political thing. It's human nature. It's what happens when you're 233 years old and there's never been a curation process. So how many people do we have? We don't really know. It's a huge figure. It's 30% of the GDP now is Washington. So we can say all we want. We're not socialists. We are. And we've got a socialist problem. We need to undo it. Uh, well, Same question with laws. How many laws do we have? <laughs> we don't know that either. As reported no. by the National Archives. Isn't that a bit scary? It yeah, is. It's well, real well, scary. It is real yeah. scary because if you're out there in the real world, in, real investors really have they, – they look at where their money is, how it's spent, and what the value of their dollar is. And this is something you talk about in your book. Our government yeah. doesn't do that. They don't look at what the, where the dollars are going, how they're spent, and what the value in return is. What is the benefit to the Correct. taxpayer? And this is yeah. something you talk about throughout your book. Yes. Yeah. It, by the way, uh, the U.S. government's the worst, but the U- European Union is similar in that regard. So they see themselves as a spout of you know, just spewing money out uh, in all directions. 
And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's never a good idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of people out there, as we know, nefarious dealers waiting for opportunities like we present to them. Uh, you know, it's like living well, in a neighborhood. Of, yeah, and we should just not be so stupid about it. But we let a lot of things get we let a lot of things get in our way, and complexity is what I talk about in the book. So we have age, complexity, size. It's a massive bureaucracy, and the, you know the crux of it all is fundraising-centric politics. I must put the full, the majority of the onus on Congress because absolutely. Have, Thank you for doing that. Well, you know. I don't blame a party. I think I'm sick and tired of all the finger pointing. I want to get on with the business sure. of America. And we can do this. We just focus on the issues. We can do this. This is a pivot. This is a, I'm applying what I've seen in tech and other industries. I'm no genius on this. I'm happy for people to come and criticize it, put up another iteration. But we can dismantle this thing and make it good for the country and get back on track and yeah, fix the deficit, too. Well, you, you talk about, you, you named the book, The 90-Degree Turn. Um, right. But what is it? What, what's the theory? What's the principle behind this? And why right. 90 degrees? Why not 180? Well, why again, not it, your three degrees? <laughs> yeah, well, some parts of it are 180. Again, it, I, maybe I didn't make the connection. It goes back to the story of Intel. They called it Right Turn. I didn't want to call the book Right Turn because it's apolitical. So the 90-degree turn is my take on that Intel story, right? So that's where it came from. Now, the principles, I would say, are in business, and they're in tech. I've been in tech. We love lean. I mean, if, when I go back, when I went back and looked at detail of the report from the – uh, Inspector General's Office of Health and Human Services for the implementation of healthcare.gov. And that was, I think, August of 2014, $1.7 billion for a website. That is obscene. The title of that project, it's in my book, 60 Contractors. We never do that in tech. Nothing starts with 60 contractors. You know, look at Google. Two guys. <laughs> That's what where success begins with a small team, right? That you know, mm -hmm. work with a kernel of something, develop it, iterate on it, put it out, so on and so forth. That's what we have learned. The founding fathers, by the way, didn't have the benefit of that insight that we have today. You know. Well, you know, but you you write in your they, book. You know, and I, I have. I, I I've got yeah. about I've got about forty eight pages of highlights here. <laughs> Tells you I read right, the book I cover to shut cover. up and let you ask. Go ahead, you talk. <laughs> well, you, you wrote so here in, towards the beginning of the book. You wrote, "Not just wasteful. The federal government's spending habits set the stage for bad outcomes and negative returns Absolutely. to taxpayers. Chief among Absolutely. these is misguided war. Thousands mm -hmm. of companies, big and small, depend upon defense spending at seven hundred and thirty-two billion dollars annually." Defense is the biggest slice of the U.S. economy. It's three times China's and over 11 times Russia's military spend. Right. Why now is everything centered on defense, and yet at the same time they tell us they're paring down defense? 
Oh no no oh, no! They're making it woke. I don't I don't know I don't know enough about woke. <laughs> it, it, you know this is I'm not trying to be first. Your first point is a really very important point, by the way, which is to me that's not the spend. The spend is bad. The spend is disgusting. It's very risky, particularly if we lose world reserve currency. But the bigger problem is the bad habit that comes from having a lot of money, right? I mean, honestly, look at people that won the lottery. Invariably, they end up in a very dark place uh, because they had such an excess of money. You know, there was no care. It was abandoned. Common sense went out the window. So that's our government. And so when I see us behaving in a reckless, wasteful way, uh, it's often a result of just excess. If we had less, I talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis in the book, right? And mm-hmm. I, my argument, my perspective is that Kennedy and his team, they didn't have a slam dunk. It was scary. I remember I was in school then and a town in New York where there was an arsenal, <laughs> where I am now, by the way, Ward of Elite. Uh, but I, the point I make there is you can say what you might about the about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but they had to think smart, and they did. They cherry sure picked. Did. Yeah, they cherry picked what Khrushchev who was sending. <laughs> Khrushchev, you know, had various <sighs> communications. Uh, the second of which was really a bad one, scared the hell out of Kennedy. And one of his advisors said, "Just pretend you never got it." That was some of the best <laughs> advice, diplomatic advice in modern history. But but in any event, uh, yeah, I mean, thinking about it, sometimes doing nothing is the best approach. Uh, But I'm getting off track. Sorry. No, that's all right. Annie, can I jump in uh, here? Oh, absolutely, Ted. Jump in anytime. Fred, is it okay to call you Fred? Please. That's my name, Jed. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I served in Congress for eight years, and I came from the private sector, and it just shocked okay. me what I saw up there. I was on the Ag Committee in Foreign Affairs, and on the Ag Committee, I learned that the USDA spent $1.6 billion to revamp its software. The project was never finished, and it goes back to what you said. They hired 60 programmers, and nobody can make a decision. Everything's got to be done by committee. And it mm-hmm. just was a tremendous waste of time. That's example one. The food yeah, stamp yeah. program, you're talking about no accountability, which is really funny because politicians will say accountability and transparency. They all want it. They all know we need it, but they'll never do anything to get it. The food stamp program, sure. we showed there was at least a billion dollars in fraud and then we got pushing the people that were in charge of that program. They said, we can admit there's probably a billion dollars in fraud, but closer to between four and seven billion dollars, billion with a B. And do you think yep. you could get anybody to move on that? Not one. Another example right. is we gave back money every year out of our members' reimbursement account, the MRA. And I prided myself in the eight years we were there we gave back close to $2 million out of our operating budget because I operated it like our business. We did more with less. And one of the chairmen of one of the committees, when he found out I was doing that, he says, and he was a Republican, 
And he says, Ted, I wish you wouldn't do that because it makes the rest of us look bad. You're supposed to spend all that money. And I told him, it's yeah. not my money to spend. And, and he goes, well, yeah. you know, that money will go back to Nancy Pelosi right now. And I said, well, it's kind of like church. You know, my job is to tithe. What the minister does with it is between him and God. And um, mm. the last thing that I want to just bring up here real quickly, I got a good friend sure. that's in the service, and they rent this building. It's 2,000 square feet. This branch of the service has been renting it for over 20 years. So they don't own it. 2,000 square feet. They were authorized to remodel that building, new, new furniture and all that. The budget was a million dollars, $1 million for a 2,000-square-foot building that they have rented for over 20 years. So this person yeah. was tasked with getting new furniture, desks, couches, chairs, you know, things like that. And they, they just priced everything and kind of went to the max that they could spend. And they couldn't spend over $50,000, and they were trying to, and their budget was $250,000. And so they report this back to leadership, and they said, we don't want to hear about it. Just spend it. And that's the problem because it's not their money. It's my money. And that needs to be brought to the American people. And so I want to hear how – I haven't finished reading your book. I want to hear how you say we should – what is your solution? How do we get – like you said, we don't want to talk about it. The rhetoric is long on the the pages. We need action. (laughs) Very good question. Thank you very much. Uh, So very good question. First of all, going back to your story, are you familiar – or did you come across cost plus fixed fee contracts when you were in Washington? Because yeah, that's sure what, did. okay. So you know that's a recipe for milking the government. This is what Halliburton did in Iraq. Uh, when right. they're incentivized to burn a truck just to buy a new one because they get seven percent of the highest price, they drive prices up just like you described. When it came to leasing yeah. uh, cars for the military personnel in Iraq, they went – or getting cars, excuse me. They went lease because they made more money that way. Last sure. thing they cared about was the American people. Last thing. There's another – there's a report. There's billions of dollars that went to Halliburton. Nothing has happened. <clears throat> so I don't know. In the book, too – uh, Annie, maybe you remember this, the $125 billion in the Pentagon that was swept oh, yeah. under the carpet? The, the I mean, report that came out, they ignored the report, yeah. they swept it under the carpet, and they, right. they, was, they had the method in which to cut it and save that money, and they completely ignored it. Yep. And, when, and, and uh, so by a mistake, somehow an audit was done for – God for heaven, heaven's sakes for trying to show areas of you know where efficiency could be introduced in the Pentagon, and without major changes, without termination, without anything that would have risked the country or national security, they ignored this, buried the report, sure and then of course, yeah, the Washington Post found it, of course, <laughs> eventually. That's the article I referred to. But um, so the problem is really at the core, I think, is that the government is about spending money and doing so recklessly. And I put the full onus for this at this point in time. Come back to your question, Ted, uh, is that the money 
control over money should be taken away from Congress and returned to the state, at least for now. So that's one of the harsh remedies I'm putting forward uh, because we went from $5.6 trillion as a national debt and 210 years, I think I say 200 in the book, it's an error, 210 years from 1789 to 1999. And since that period, we've racked up 25 trillion more. Something is wrong in the last 20 years. And I think we have to act quickly. And I just think it's clear beyond the shadow of a doubt that Congress does not give a damn. And maybe they just don't, they can't control it. I just don't know. It could be they can't control it. Politics is out of control. You know? Well, that's part of it. But you said something else. It's, the, it's the, the, the cycle of raising money. Politicians, yes. they worry about their next election. And so they're Absolutely. out there raising millions and millions and millions of dollars. Right. Statesmen worry about their next generations. And, y- y- I mean, uh, you are so right on that. And I sat in a budget meeting when Diane Black was the interim uh, budget chair. And you, you, are you familiar with the Pac-Man chart on um, our debt? Back in 1964. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 1964, that I don't know. 70%. Thank you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. 70% of our our, our um cost of running government, or 70% of our income for a nation, 70% was discretionary funding. So if you look okay. back in those eras, you could do an interstate highway like Eisenhower did, or you could do a space program uh-huh. like John Kennedy did, and the discretionary was roughly 30%. The inverse uh-huh. of that is true. Actually, today, over 70% is mandatory spending, and that's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, retirement mm-hmm. programs, interest on our debt. And then mm-hmm. we're right at a little bit under 30% is discretionary. That discretionary, mm-hmm. and this will blow people away, and I did this to Diane Black, that discretionary yeah. funds all of government. That discretionary mm-hmm. funds all of the military. So your mm-hmm. Department of Health, Education, all those. Yep. And yep. You, you take the uptick in interest just since in the last two years, uh, mm-hmm. A 1% increase on $30 trillion in interest is $300 billion. And if you, oh, yeah. you, you add that to what we were already paying, and you go up another click, yep. we're paying yep. more for our interest on our national right. debt than we are right. on our military. And I said to Diane Black, the Pac-Man part of this is it's going to mm. consume us as a nation. And she looked at me, and Diane's a great lady. Uh, she looked at me, she goes, yeah, I understand, but we're not going to do it. We, we can't do anything. And it's in when, that, when did you in say that, that, if I may? I, when was that? It was, um, it was probably in 2015, 16. All right. Well, you're spot on with, with that whole argument. I couldn't agree more. It's, you, you it's, it's, grab it's, them and it's, shake you know, them. In the, book, in the book, I talk about modern monetary theory that was actually from guidance from my younger brother Bobby who gave me a lot of his feedback uh, and he knows a lot about finance and, and economics etc much more than I do but anyway point here that we make in the book is that debt is okay provided it's for a good reason so 
Amazon had a lot of debt when they were building up the company, paid back them and investors alike. So we're okay with debt and discretionary and this and that and the other. It's how we deal, how we spend it. So my analysis says that for every one dollar today that is spent by our federal government, uh, we get less than half a penny of value in return. I saw that in your book. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazingly Put so. another, that's what I call the value gap. I did an analysis. I didn't just look at, I, well, I use the healthcare.gov because there's a lot of data on it, and I know that arena fairly well because I'm from tech. I had a healthcare site of my own. In fact, I talk about the grants. I think, Annie, you were alluding to that earlier, the grant I had from NIH for a quarter of a million dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the course of the year, nobody from NIH asked what we were doing. They never asked for really? a demo. Not a thing. You know, well, they did. No, they asked one thing. They wanted to know if there was any complaints of sexual harassment on the job, <laughs> on our project. And I, I told them there weren't any. I'm sorry to disappoint you. We haven't had any. That was it. No, seriously, I called our project manager. I said, I like what we're doing. I like to, you know, we talked that those time days about translational medicine, bringing it out to the field, right? So I was anxious to do that. Uh, no interest. They were on to more spending. That's what the government does. That's why we see these problems, because they're in the habit of spending money. There is no accounting for it. So, you know, maybe you could get away with that when times were good. But guess what? Right. Right. They have passed us. So we have to wake up. So I say rule not now. I'm interested for your reaction since you were in Congress, but I know the states aren't perfect, but the states are 50 for decentralized. So one aspect of my theory, going back to Annie's earlier question, is is being decentralized. Exactly. And so I think we should decentralize. That doesn't mean we do away with Congress. Congress has a place. But when we do that decentralization, we put a huge hole in fundraising-centric politics. And I agree with that. I think that's a smart thing to do. Out. That's the, that's the, I'm glad to hear that. Delighted to hear. Please advance my book to all of your <laughs> former colleagues and others. But this is what I'm outlining and recommending we do. That's the pivot. I'll do that. Um, in fact, I'm meeting with Dave Bratton about three weeks, and he's the dean of uh, Liberty University, uh, and he served with me for two Great. congresses. But your brother was very astute because I told that uh, John Boehner when he was the speaker, when he was saying we have to raise the debt ceiling. I said, no, we don't. And he said, well, we're going to default. And I said, well, not raising the debt ceiling does not automatically trigger a default. Of course, I got tore up in media. And I said what your brother said. I said, debt can be good or bad. If you're using debt to build your business, investing in it, for the return, it's good. But if you're paying your debt, to live on, that's very bad. And I use the analogy of the donut, car, um, the donut spare tire in your back car. Yeah. You're in the car when you get a flat. You put that little donut. It's a temporary donut. It's a temporary tire. And I said, yeah. our nation has four of those on it, and we're driving around <laughs> like everything's fine. And uh, yeah. he, he just didn't get it. Um, but it, 
you're talking about the devolution or decentralizing government. I use that argument on food stamps. We need to yeah. decentralize or de a devolution of the federal government and put back to the states which they should be doing and get away from the federal government which they should not be doing. And if you look at food right. stamps, and I was my wife and I were recipients of food stamps for about six weeks right after we got married back <clears throat> in '75. I was 19, and so I know the importance of that program, but. On a federal program, it's like a black box. Everybody says, well, it's, it's the government's money. It's, you know, they're giving us this money. It's their money. And I right. think in my state of Florida, if we put the onus on Governor DeSantis that says you need to take care of your people in your state, they shouldn't go hungry. Therefore, do you think he'll pay more attention to jobs program, getting people back into work, instead of just saying, right. well, the federal government's going to take care of it? And so that would increase the accountability, and it would push that to the state like you're recommending. Yes. I, I, that's a good point. I mean, the idea here, uh, this thing I call the needs monitor, is basically the tool, online, secure, and open source, that every citizen has access to to record what they need. You know, it's uh, a bit more structured than what I just described, but fundamentally that's the idea. Mm -hmm. So we try to align that with government, whether that's your town or your county or your state or even regional. Think at a regional level when we think about water and things like that. So the idea is to accumulate these things, not accumulate, organize them in a structured way and then understand what people really need. And we should take a lot of politics out of politics. I mean, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, it's great to honor the country and wave the flag and love your state and root for your team, but too much of that enters into uh, what really should be a rational bottom-up process with minimal overhead and waste. I don't expect government ever to be as efficient as private industry, but half as efficient. That should be our goal. Today, we've got... <laughs> You know, 90, 95.5% overhead. Well, you know, we got the Ted and Fred show here. <laughs> Andy's sitting in the background. Sorry, right Andy. <laughs> no, you, you, you crossed over so many different things that I had questions on. Um, going back, I had started to mention about the majority of the budget being with defense. And you devote a large portion of your book to defense in the military. And yeah. you're saying that there's a huge industry that is sucking on the tit of government, no other way to put it, that's all centered around defense. This is a multi-trillion dollar industry, which is also yes. fueling wars. You put down that you know Vietnam was not necessary, that over 70% of it was just to save face were the rest was to actually save us from communism and from China or whatever is North Korea taking over South, uh, South I'm not North Korea, South Vietnam being overrun yeah. by the right. uh, Chinese and North Envy. Right. Um, only 30%, but 70% just went into making it look like we're right. really doing something. Now, I will yep. make a personal observation because my first husband mm -hmm. was a Marine mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Up above him was the battalion, and he tried to get me a job in there. And when I went to talk to them about that, 
Um, I was told basically don't rock the boat. You know, whatever you do, if you find a better way to do something, don't tell us about it. Don't yeah. do it. Don't tell us about it. Just get your paycheck <laughs> and push the papers the way we tell you to push oh. it. And oh, I'm man. sorry. Yeah. I, I owned businesses. I managed businesses. And that just rankled me the wrong way. I can't do that. And I basically yeah. said, I can't do that. Uh, but that is the government mindset. And another thing you mentioned was about yeah. the budget surplus that you may mm-hmm. have. Say, for example, his unit at the end of the year would have so much money left <clears> over. <throat> He was told to right. find a way to spend it. Otherwise, if you turn it back in, they're going to reduce our budget by that amount yep, of money. Yep, that's priority one. But isn't that a good thing if you were able to come in under budget and then proceed to do it year after year and not have to ask for additional mm-hmm. money? That would be the ideal thing, but our government is, as my friend Mike Cutler says, bass backwards. <laughs> Well, that's at the core of what I was taught as a young man, very naive, very green, in 1975 in my first semester of graduate school in government and public administration. This was to prepare young people for a future, a lifetime in government. And they said nothing about efficiency, nothing about saving. They said spend and spend big. That's the mantra. And uh, I guess they succeeded. I was offended by that at some level. As an American, I was offended by that. We never lived like that in my middle-class family in upstate New York. It was just, you know, my grandmother would say, a quote her in the book, Nana, waste not, want not. I still live by that, you know. So I, that really appalled me. I was kind of shocked, but I just was a young person. I backed away, found a job, needed a job because I would have starved. And uh, eventually, a few years later, found myself selling to the government. And then I really saw the mechanics. And to your point, Anna, it's very well said. Many very good people in the federal government are extremely uh, frustrated because they can't get more accomplished. So I don't want to single out civil servants and say they're all, you know, losers and just there for the paycheck. Some are, you know, parasites well, like I was. But well, others are in your really, book, yeah. Well, you point out in your book, when you're talking about the complexity of government, uh, Benjamin Franklin, you quote, as saying, never confuse motion with action. And you right. said he must have been peering into his crystal ball and seeing the future of the federal government because you write further down. To keep the promise of the U.S. Constitution, well-functioning government is not an option. Yet due to a long history of manufactured complexity, what the federal government can accomplish in 1,000 steps can be done in 10 or 1 or maybe none. Beautifully read. Could you read the whole book for me? (laughs) Not not during the show, I mean. If sure, you, you have a beautiful, you have audio, a great voice. I'd be happy to. I love your voice. I love your voice. <laughs> well, I've got yeah, the no, that's for radio. Thank right you for, said. No, but that's so show, that shows it. No, you know what? I have to say thank you. No, that I shows you don't re- set yourself short. <laughs> yeah, don't. But no, I appreciate that you really read the book and focus on this and the other patches. It's very good. You're absolutely right. Yeah. 
So, um, so what, should, what should I say? <laughs> Was there a question? Well, now, here, here comes in your needs monitor. Now, how Correct. would that exactly work? Uh, because we're saying, right. all right, I want to go over, for example, I took a friend of mine over to our local social services. He was a little in a bit of a situation. I wanted to give him a hand, so I went with him to help him through the process. <laughs> and when I looked at the complexities and the hoops he had to jump through, where some, yeah. that one person could have given him a very simple, straightforward answer. But instead, mm-hmm. you've got to fill out this form. You've got to go over here. You can't sit in this line. You have to go over the lat line. You have to go through this door. And not Instead yep. of saying, well, listen, these are the criteria you need to meet. All right, go down this checklist and check off everything right. and then come back to me and we'll get it done. But no. Correct. Our, our, now, here comes in the needs monitor. Now, is it an right. individual can go online and do this or do people? Yes. Send yes. it up up the chain to the local council or no no what? well the local council uh, it's something for everybody that's the point we can all look at it we can all see now of course you can be anonymized I don't want to have my name and my address there but I can be Fred Eberline from you know uh, wherever in America and. You know, behind the scenes, we validate that that's a real person registered at that place, whatever. Uh, But the idea is that we collect those needs, and then we try to intersect those with the resources of government. And this is instrumental in the pivot, particularly when I think of Washington. So Washington has a huge amount of resources, about 10 million people altogether, and many more resources beyond that. If you look at the labs, if you look at everything they have out there, trillions of dollars in assets. Would, would you say that's about right, Ted, in your experience in Washington? And government? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, so we shouldn't just like, the idea of just saying summarily cut out this aging, cut out that, I understand. It's great for rhetoric. It's, you know, it's nice to dream about it, but it's not going to really happen without creating a lot of problems. And we should never forget that in those government agencies, there are human beings like you and me, and nobody likes to just be fired from a job. But I say give them an opportunity by letting them know what the needs of the country are and say, oh, if you work in the federal government today, uh, there's loads of opportunities of being advertised online from the states. You know, throw your hat in there or team up with others or whatever. I think if we started doing this, this is what I call bottom-up separation, is where we identify what in Washington intersects with the needs at the bottom of everyday citizens. And that helps us to define which parts of Washington to keep and which parts to repurpose. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that yes, makes it a does. Lot of sense. Well, Ted, this, this yeah. you'll find interesting. Now, how does that, how would that work with the burgeoning unions we have with government federal workers and now the growing uh, entrance of unions of congressional aides becoming unionized. How do you counter the unions and how do you get around them or can you? Yeah. Well, to be honest, I know very little about unions, but one thing I'm pretty certain of, they're made up of humans like you and me. Right. And Ted, so 
I think we have to just appeal to our human side, our better side, our American side. Let's work together. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of, you know, uh, I mean, the unions seem to be on the rise again, and maybe there's a good reason for that. But we have to work to find the common ground. If our focus is always on what we disagree about, the other or their party, we'll get nowhere. And that's pretty much proven itself out over the last 20 years. Sure. I well, think Ted, the shock this, this, of, of, yeah. Well, I was, was going to say, Ted, this would probably go right up your alley because you're more familiar with the, the union side of federal government and also with now the growing movement to unionize um, uh, your congressional aides. And I, I'd really love to see how that works where you've got someone – that was a Republican conservative having a unionized office that was formerly that of a liberal Democrat. Boy, I can see your, how the work will go on that office and the constituents being met by them. That's no fun. Right. So, No, it's not. Unions, is, they can kind of be like the debt. They can be a good thing or a bad thing. And um, yeah. you know, I was in a union, and I got a very sour taste for that union. Because they told me not to work as hard as I was working, and that came from the the BA of the job was the Carpenters Labor Union. Because the other guys were complaining that I was making them look bad. But I think there has to be a way to incentivize saving money in these agencies, and I think they also have to be repurposed on their mission. Because I don't think they've done that, and a lot of these agencies start temporarily like food stamps temporary needy uh temporary assistance for needy families is how it started temporary Uh um psa was supposed to be a temporary program and um you know i don't want to argue the merits i know we've not had another major attack and i know a lot of that goes to them but there has to be a way to incentivize these programs and refine them hone them down and i think as you said in earlier Take a lot of that to the states. If the states were in charge of food stamps in their states, there would be closer programs run by local government, state government, and the federal government could just monitor the results. Well, that I completely agree. These these social programs should be state-run. Unemployment insurance, welfare, food stamps, Section 8 housing, the free Obama phones should all be state-run. It used to be that if you went for unemployment, you had to show up at the unemployment office at a specific time. And if you're not at that window, and there may be a line, which always was, uh, you're going to be denied your benefits for that week, or they're going to give you the right act, explain why you weren't here on time, and tell me where you applied for a job, give you the references of who you spoke to, let me prove prove to me that you actually went there. But now, now you get a check in your mail. Oh, no, wait a minute. Not even in your mailbox. It's direct deposited to your bank. It used to be wow. welfare to work or work to welfare, whatever. You know, you used to have to say, listen, this is temporary welfare unless you're proven to be permanently disabled and can never, ever work or the situation is where you can never, ever work. You have to do something, even if it's emptying the waste baskets at the VA hospital. That's, that's going out the window. Yeah. I, I would interject here if I'm um, – I'm sorry. Did I interrupt? Go ahead, Annie. No, no, go ahead. No, finish, please. 
I was just going to say um, there's more than ju- part of the reason why I'm advocating and in my theory saying that we should return budgetary control to the states is primarily because Washington is doing such a poor job. Okay, so it's not because I think the states are necessarily performing a lot better. It's more so because we have to do something to pull away from Congress uh, their control over money. They've proven in 20 years, the past 20 years, they really have no control over it. And that's very dangerous ticking time bomb. I mean, as, as Ted, you just said, that we're paying, I think, half a trillion dollars a year just in interest on debt now. And mm-hmm. Congress is doing nothing to address that. So no first reason for decentralizing is simply to get it out of the hands of Congress. The states, on the other hand, part of this is about them applying, let's say, proportionality to financing things. So bear in mind in my model, and this is a bit controversial, I think all decisions, ultimately those including defense spending, should be made at the state level. The reason for that is I think we need to start to think proportionality. We don't act proportionally today, in my humble opinion. Uh, If you look at the amount of spend on military, for example, vis-a-vis other industries, and I think that's because politics has had its effect, that has compounded over years, and we see this gap. So by returning to the state level, we also uh, put a big hole in fundraising centric politics as it is today. It doesn't mean that there's no more lobbyists out there. They were always going to be as long as there's parasites in this world. We know that, but this puts a, this radically changes how we do things today. And let me say substantially, maybe that people get scared by radical. I don't want radical to, you know, we don't, I don't advocate revolutions more. How can we intelligently apply ourselves using what we know today about tech and management practices to make for a much, much better government that delivers value? So, again, bringing this back to the states is getting control from Washington and then interjecting some balance and proportionality into financing, uh, into you know, budgetary decisions. Well, you know, after I watched my county council committee meeting last night, I'm wondering just how well that might even work, because even within my small neighborhood, well, it's not exactly small, but within even just my local government, I see the waste, because they want to implement Mm -hmm. a green space tax, and yet we've got two agencies that work hand-in-hand with the county council already, to handle yeah. green space, and they want to form right. a a council state partnership, which eventually the yeah. state would then take over in our local area. So yeah. I don't even trust a local government to be responsible. So how do we have it where we have a you at basically a democracy dictating yeah. how the the budget goes? Yeah, I, yeah, majority rule decides. I think this is where isn't this politics just kind of corrupting common sense? I don't know. Uh, no, I think, I think you're right idea, on that for sure. 
Yeah, I think the idea here, Annie, is to try to unwind all of those hierarchies of government we have. I'm not saying go home, everybody. It's just like we have a new metric. It's called the needs monitor. And here it is for your town. This is what people want to have done. And maybe it's environmentally, maybe it's green, maybe it's something, whatever. They can put it there. And they can offer solutions, too. The idea is not just to have people complaining and bitching. It's to let them contribute to solving a problem. Now, there are a lot of issues out there, like political ones, that I think we should just kind of like, kind of let them die on the vine, if you will, and, and let new green shoots, you know, rise from, I'm being poetic, <laughs> sorry, but, you know, do let let a new approach emerge. We have to have the will to try that. It won't be perfect. Politics will always be doing its thing, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but we really should formulate a better approach, and that's what I'm attempting to do in the 90-degree turn. All right, well, now, Ted, you've, you've read part of the book. Um, how would government be change in this manner would it be receptive or would we find uh the mass media and a big pushback from uh, uh entrenched politicians saying no we don't want to change government we're happy the way it is do you see any possibility of something like this being implemented i think as fred said you know politics comes into play and i, I agree with whatever you just said you're going to run in resistance on both sides. You're going to run in resistance from the agencies. And it's it's going to be a tough lift. But if we don't, yeah. one of those things, if you don't deal with your debt, it, it doesn't matter if you deal with your debt or not, because if you don't deal with it, your debt's going to deal with you as a nation. And it'll dictate the austerity measures that will come. And you can look at what's going on in Argentina right now when over 40, 41 or 51% of the people are getting subsidies from the government and they're rioting in the streets because of austerity measures. And uh, one of the interviews yeah. I saw, they asked the guy why he was rioting. He says, well, we want more from the government. We don't want to take away. And, you know, our forefathers yeah. warned us of that. No, no doubt that Congress and anybody in Congress would probably hate this theory um, but that's their problem <laughs> <laughs> well you hit on something if I may Annie when yeah. um, you said Fred that if they would work on a common goal if they would come mm-hmm. to the to, to the realization and I, I sat down with Wolf Blitzer he and I went out to dinner to try really? to get him to talk uh, yeah I, I called him up I had our, our team set it up and Maybe we you went can to dinner introduce for two hours, <laughs> just he and I, and it was all, I'll be glad to, uh, it was all about getting the message out about our debt, not as Republicans or Democrats, but of the tsunami that's coming at us. If we don't deal with mm-hmm. this, that debt will deal with us. And you were talking about defense, going mm-hmm. to the states, and I'm going to have to push back a little bit of that because one of the few things that the federal government has asked for is to provide for the, the common defense of the nation. And if you have each state kind of deciding what they're going to do, you're organizing by committee, and that never okay. works well. No, 
I'm not um, advocating that. I'm not just that's a very good point, and I just so I'm perfectly clear. I'm not advocating that the defense okay, go. goes to the state. I'm advocating that the funding decisions are reasoned at the state level alongside other funding things, proportionality. So defense remains. I look at we're a democracy. It's a crazy world. We need a strong defense. I worked with defense. I walked the halls of the Pentagon. I have a, a lot of respect, but they'll right. be the first to tell you. Look at Robert Gates, you know, his story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's a guy that... I read his book. I got it right here. <laughs> yeah, and he had to do what? He had to do what? He had to sneak around yeah. to save money sure for did. the tax. That is ridiculous. Would you see that happen? And bravo to him, but... Shame on the system. That's another lesson learned. I think don't that you is think shame on the of, system. Yeah, we don't you think we've run out of time? I mean, it seems obvious to me, and I look at Congress as human beings first. I think if I was there with them, getting all these perks, seeing all these lobbyists, I wouldn't be any different. So I don't look at this as a political. You're this. You're that party. It's a human issue, and we should just recognize it as, as such. Money mm-hmm. is the world's biggest bias. Money will get people to do a lot of crazy things. We've seen it. And that's what sure this does. is about, money. We need to take money out. When Look, at campaigns are running into, what was the, what was the total in 2020? Was it $14 billion? Was it a billion? I mean, it was, I think it was 14 billion. Yes, skyrocketing. And, you know, bear in mind, as they say in the book, a lot of that money is pharma. A lot of that money is banks, from banks to Congress. I mean, two-thirds of Congress today, as of, I don't know, when I wrote the book in that report, in the couple of, last couple of years, is funded, uh, receives funding, I should say. That was in the 2020 election from pharma two-thirds of stars so you know they're not they're humans they're just gonna help pharma and look the other way yeah self-interest yeah it is and i think we would all be that way so i don't want i think it goes nowhere for us to argue parties any longer the parties have both failed to me it's like drinking coke and pepsi when i want a a water (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we should just recognize it. That's okay. There's nothing wrong. But we should, if you stand back and look at, like, Ray Dalio's Changing World Order. And I don't I know if you're that. familiar. All right. Well, I'm we familiar should with eat. it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he looks at cycles over the last 500 years. We're 233 years old. That's pretty old. Right. We're starting to go down the chute of the 300-year cycle. We and sure it begins, are. And according to Ray, and he's looked at, he's gone back 500 years, he's looked at the Dutch, he's looked at the British, uh, and he's modeled these. And it's a bit scary to see this. But, you know, he says, to his credit, uh, we can do things to stop this. And that's exactly where I intersect with Ray Dalio, if you know. Um, I mean, I think he has 21 million views on YouTube, so he's he's a very successful entrepreneur. I think, believe he's a billionaire, multi-billionaire. Anyhow, yeah. uh, so I, I see the U.S. as being in a cycle, 
and I put forward my theory as a way of applying the brakes and returning us to where we should be. Yeah. Well, we sure well, need to. Yeah. If not, those brakes are going to put the pressure on us and change yeah. however we live in this yeah. country. Yeah. And it, well, by the well, way, have... not just the U.S. of A. It's all democratic republics. The EU, the EU has very similar problems, and given how young they are, uh, those problems are even one could argue worse. Uh, right. But their economy is there is not as big as our. Well, almost as big now, but. Our waste is much greater, so I, I don't want to misstate this. The EU has its issues, but they're well, relatively you, you, small you, now. You describe the uphill battle in your book that we're going to be facing, and yet after you yeah. describe the uphill mm-hmm. battle, you also give steps on how we can pull ourselves out because you start off with saying the past right. has gotten us to where we are today. Questioning mm-hmm. tradition and common practice cause discomfort. It's best to leave right. well enough alone. We're comfortable with right. what we know, even when we hate it and see it fail. Were it not for our risk-adverse shortcomings, we would, would have radicalized Washington long ago. But then on the very next page, you talk about the bottom-up separation on simple right. steps on trying to get this to work. Now, what is your mm-hmm. bottom-up separation idea? And we're running down to right. our last few minutes here. Sure. Okay. Well, the bottom-up comes from the um, uh, the monitor, the needs monitor. So the me- needs monitor, think of it as a web platform, going to a web page, maybe like some commerce pages you've been at, or not really social media. But anyway, it'll be a survey of sorts compiled in there for people to see and add to securely. It'll be open source. So that is where we put together our needs. We package them effectively into, let's say, virtual RFPs, requests for proposals. The states are familiar with this. The everyday citizens aren't so much, but it's not a great leap. It's not that complicated. And we can see these proposals. People who participated asking about clean water or better education or whatever, they can see exactly what went from whatever state or county or you're in to the state or the federal government, they can, they can now monitor that. So that's the idea here, Annie, in terms of streamlining the federal government to align the federal government with local needs. Well, now here's, here's the, I was going to say, here's the kicker question because you know, there's going to be a huge pushback and you talk about uh, political fundraising. And there's big bucks mm-hmm. behind that. And we you talk that. about in your book, you talk about in your book yeah. how the media, and we know the media is in bed with certain politicians. Mm-hmm. How do yeah. we then prevent them from controlling the conversation and controlling what the needs are? Well, I think it all goes back to money. As I said, this is the evil, I think. I mean, I like money. I'm a capitalist, but too much is not good. And there's way too much in politics. And politicians, you know, it, Ted has attested, I think, right? It's all about fundraising. Yeah. I didn't play so, their game. And it, you can do it without that. But you. I agree with you. There's yeah. way too much money in politics. Yeah. That's what's corrupted it. So that's why I say let's stop mucking around and making excuses and rationalizing they're not going to find any issue that brings them together. Okay, there's another war or something, big deal. 
Look, they've been given strategic objectives from Treasury since 2013. Treasury has said, hey, guys, by the way, of the last, uh, over the last 18 years, 14 of those years, we lost 10% or more. This was in the unemployment insurance fund, okay? Billions of dollars. What do you think Congress has done? Zero. Nothing. That's, right. That to me is, wait a minute, that's the Constitution, guys. You violated it. So we've got to redefine your role. But if we get down the rat hole of politics and finger-pointing, you know, it's just not going to turn out well uh, because we ha- I think it's abundantly clear. I'm no rocket scientist, but it seems to me. I, I don't know. I'm seeing the end of the tunnel, and there's a train coming in the other direction. Big, big train. Big train. It's time we, you know, wake up and smell the coffee and stop making excuses. If we're Americans, then by golly, we should show it. Period. We sure should. (laughs) And John Kennedy brought us together in the space program to go to the moon. And we didn't have the computer power, but we came together as Americans to make that happen. And we need that kind of leadership to bring all Americans together and say, this is where we're going, and make those tough decisions now before they're forced yeah. on us. Um, yeah. It's I'm, been great I'm talking saying, to you. Yeah, I'm just saying let's return it. We can do it now. We can return the control to the people that wasn't there at the beginning. Is this a solution for all time for the next millennium? I would never be so naive to say it, but it's a way of rescuing the United States of America from the impending crisis in Washington, D.C. I agree. Wow. Well, it is a, it's a powerful book, Thank very you. interesting, a good read. Um, I, I love reading books of my guests cover to cover, so I know what I'm, I'm getting myself into. But people can find you uh, – you have a blog also, 90degreeturn.com, but the book is also right. up on Amazon. So they can right. people listening to the show in the archives can click on a 90-degree turn and go to Amazon to get your book or go to your blog link and go onto your blog and have a conversation with you. It has been fun speaking with you, Fred, and I wish you a lot of luck on your thank book. Thank you. Shows. I really thank appreciate Fred. your Great time and you. Ted's as well. Yeah, thanks for both of you. Thank you so much. Take care. Yes, All sir. right. Have a good weekend Stay and God in bless in the hard work. All right. We will. All right. Check Bye-bye. out J.B. Fred Eberline at 90DegreeTurn.com. Uh, we have our next guest in on the show here, Ted. Uh, my guest co-host today is former congressman out of the great sunshine state of Florida, Ted Yoho. And I want to welcome to the show from Tunnels to Towers Foundation, Christy Kernan. And I know I'm going to mispronounce your last name. Boreal? Did I say that correctly? You got it. Perfect. It's so oh, nice wow. to be with you. <laughs> oh, it is. Hey, Christy, great to have my you on. Pleasure. Oh, it's so nice yes. to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, and I've got sitting outside flying in my flag. Normally I have the Blue Lives Matter, uh, the Blue Lives uh, flag sitting out front, uh, but I switched it out this week. Always the week before 9-11, I put out my flag of heroes. And that's, oh, that's what's thank you flying for doing in my that. front yard. Yeah, three of my friends uh, were one of the, were of the 72 that rushed in and did not come out. Um, oh, so I don't know sorry. if they told you. 
I, I don't know if they told you, but I came out of the 90 precinct just over the bridge from uh, the Twin Towers. Uh, wow. I, I retired back in 96, but I was there in 93 when it was bombed the first time. And I just mm-hmm. lost my co-host. He just fell off, so he'll probably call back in, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> um, well, if people aren't familiar with Tunnels to Towers that was founded by Frank Silla, let people know exactly what it is. I, I don't know of anyone that shouldn't know what it is, but there's always someone out there that doesn't know. Sure. The the Tunnel to Towers Foundation is the preeminent 9-11 foundation. And what the Tunnel to Towers Foundation does is it helps America's heroes. Uh, For $11 a month, you help America's heroes. And what the foundation does is when America's heroes don't come home, people like first responders, fallen first responders who leave young children behind, are catastrophically injured, uh, service members. Uh, we pay off mortgages of fallen first responders who leave young children's behind, children behind, gold star families who leave young children behind, and we build for catastrophically injured service members uh, and catastrophically injured first responders. We build smart homes to help them live more independent lives, uh, and we are working to eradicate veteran homelessness and now just this week we announced the launch of our tunnel to towers 9-11 institute which is working to educate children k-12 across america about 9-11 so they can never forget we have runs and walks and climbs across america golf outings barbecues all part of our Never Forget program so that people can remember America's heroes and the sacrifices they've made for all of us. People can participate and engage, remember our heroes, um, and, and that helps to fund all of our amazing programs that, that help to remember the sacrifices they've made for all of us. You know, um, you, you, when I ever think of Tunnels to Towers, I, I always flash back to those that, yeah. I worked with or went to the academy with and lost, and Eddie Burns is one of them. It was the first time I stood in a funeral, uh, white gloves on, and I ended up with a bloody nose because he was in my sister class in the academy. And I can go down the list, Bob Mishadi, uh, and I can go on and on, uh, Reggie Regimentowski, th- those that we've lost. Um, and back then we had no one. You You had your pension and that was it have a nice life um, but tunnels to towers has come out as a premier premier uh charity foundation and whenever someone asks me about a charity i always refer them to the uh, charity navigator and mm-hmm. i don't even have to do that with you guys because uh, right now it, a good charity is a charity that gives 85 percent back to what it's founded for yours is 90 4%, with 3% going to fundraising and 3%, a mere 3% to running the foundation. That is a heck of a big bang for the buck for people to donate to. It's extraordinary. We are always a four-star rated charity, which is the highest rating you can get on Charity Navigator. Um, and this foundation is just, it's so well run. The, the Siller family who started this foundation, it's an extraordinary family. And it was started um, in, in the name of Stephen Siller and in his memory, uh, a firefighter who ran into the danger on 9-11 to help others sacrifice his life 
uh, to help others that day. And it's in his memory that we help so many heroes today. Um, and in his memory and the memory of all we lost on that day. So it's extraordinary, the work that we do, but it's also the integrity of the organization. You think about the integrity of America's heroes. It carries through to everything we do, certainly how we represent ourselves financially. Uh, everything we do, it just carries through. Um, I've, I've never worked in an organization that ha that's had the integrity that this one does. It's extraordinary. It is, it is. And I have to tell you that uh, my husband passed away a year ago this past June. I'm so sorry. No, that's, that's right. He's out of pain. That's the most important thing. Hmm. And uh, when I... People are asking, you know, where do I send flowers, whatever. And I kept on saying, in lieu of flowers, go to t2t.org and make a donation in his name. Thank you. And i got to tell you that um, about two months afterwards, uh, the staff over there, very, very helpful. They gave me a list of everyone and how much they donated. And there's one or two people I didn't have an address for, and they were able to give that to me. And I sent out a personal thank you note to each and every person. Just to That's say awesome. thank you for making a do donation. And this is something that I encourage other people to do, that, you know, if, if there is, you want to give a, even a Christmas gift. You make a donation mm -hmm. to T2T and give, put it in the Christmas card. In your name, in your honor, I made this donation. And it's a worthy cause because it's not only giving a gift to the person saying, I thought of you, but I thought so well of you that I thought I would put your name on this donation. And then to the person that receives the benefit of that donation. It's two gifts being given in one choice. Absolutely. You can donate in honor and memory of people. Uh, we see this for uh, when people pass. We see this for holidays, for um, birthdays. You see it for a variety of different ways. We also see um, legacy giving, right? So we, people, we see people who say, I want my legacy to carry on. And we see people who put giving into their wills. Uh, we have, you're, you're able to do that on our website as well. Uh, it's really extraordinary. Uh, the generosity of people in this country is, is extraordinary, and it never ceases to amaze me. But there are a variety of ways to give, um, and, and it's all available on T2T.org. Yeah. Now, I, I was amazed because they're branching out in, in the donations because you guys are just that successful because now you're handling uh, homeless veterans. You're helping them to find places. Uh, I saw that you were also helping the children in Ukraine. Uh, you have these Never Forget programs. Now, just just two days ago, you launched the 9-11 Institute. And that's, uh, that is a multi-tier thing where you break it down to different grade levels. And mm -hmm. you were instrumental. And as I, I see, I did my research. You were one of the main people that put this 9-11 Institute together. Tell us about what it is and all the different functions it does. Oh, I am so excited about this launch. I can't even I can't even begin to to tell you how thrilled I am that this has actually become reality. So this week what we announced is the launch of the 9-11 Institute, as you mentioned, and this is a multifaceted, expanded education program uh, for the, for, uh, at Tunnel to Towers, um, and it has a number of different components. So it has curriculum, which I'll tell you all about because 
that is just extraordinary. And what we, we are doing with curriculum, no one else is doing. And that's what's really exciting. And I can't wait for it to be in classrooms all over this country. Uh, we also have a Never Forget Speakers Bureau. We have where people can, um, educators can request speakers come into their classrooms, do assemblies in their schools. Um, city officials can ask uh, for uh, people to come and speak at events across the country. We also have, if you have a 9-11 story or a part of 9-11 and you'd like to be part of our Speakers Bureau, um, we have a way for you to tell us your story and we can get in touch uh, and discuss that. We have a 9-11 Never Forget Mobile exhibit. This is an 83-foot tractor trailer that opens up into a museum with artifacts about 9-11 uh, that has been traveling the country that we are now making a push to get that into schools, to get that to more school and educational locations. And we're also proud to announce that we're going to grant substantial financial scholarships to exemplary high school students that are the children of our program recipients. So this is really new, and what's really special about it is it's named after um, the Siller family patriarch, Russell F. Siller. So Russell F. Siller Memorial Scholarships. It's something we're really so proud. He's a longtime educator um, and no longer with us, and we're just really so proud that we're now bringing this to life in his memory. It's just such an honor to do that. So those are the components of the Institute, and we're just so delighted that now we're going to make sure kids are educated so that they can never forget, because I don't know if you know this, but uh, after 20 years, only two states mandated K-12 education. That was Tennessee and Arizona, and 21 years later, only one state joined them, and that's New Jersey. So in this grand country of ours, only three states are mandating K-12 education, and that is a travesty. The good news is, though, that there are many educators that despite mandates, they're teaching anyway. So that's the good news. Unfortunately, though, there are a lot of places where it's not being taught at all. So uh, we, need to, we need to make some ground, and we need to get um, a lot of this curriculum into the hands of, of lots of teachers across this country. And I've done a lot of listening for a long time at all the issues around 9-11 education. And what we've done with our curriculum is try to answer all of the issues that I've heard about and answer it in a way that's really comprehensive, right? So we are offering comprehensive curriculum units for K-12. to So what does that mean? It means a teacher of any age and with any background can pick up a full unit and these units have full social studies scripted lessons, right? So if you know nothing about 9-11 and you just graduated college, you could pick up one of our units and be able to use a completely scripted um, set of lessons. And if you have a full week, great, because we've got lessons that you can use all week. If you have a day, you could have, we could just teach one lesson. But we've made it easy so you can pick and choose depending upon how much time, depending upon your comfort level, depending upon how much background you have on it. We provided background material for the teacher just, so, just to 
uh, give them more background and understanding and context so they feel more comfortable teaching about that day. Um, and we also provided the scripted lessons, right? We have learning activities that are within the units that both reinforce educational standards and they also challenge students academically. Every unit provides that deep background plus we, provide, we have videos of uh, first-hand accounts about 9-11, and we have, for the, the trilogy of books that I wrote, we have book summaries. So teachers really have background information that, that again, makes sure that there's ease of implementation. We cover all the impacted sites because we want to make sure that kids are learning about all of that plus the legacy of goodness and how we spread goodness today to honor all of those lives that we lost. We focus solely on true nonfiction accounts of 9-11. And I can't tell you how important that is because there are bodies of work out there, may surprise you to hear this, but they actually focus on fiction. They have fiction. They have fictional art. They have fictional books. And I just cannot comprehend why we would use fiction to teach kids when we have so many incredible stories out there that are real and true. So we focus on nonfiction, and that spans survivors, first responders, witnesses, government officials, family members, and our goal is to provide these different points of view on that day and its aftermath. We created engaging, emotive, first-person videos. We want kids to hear how people felt, to hear what they saw, and see the emotion on their faces as they recount their experiences from that day and the days that followed. In a couple of our units, we have two foundation board members who are also retired FDNY battalion chiefs that narrate a video tour of our Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Never Forget mobile exhibit while they're providing historical context about the day. Uh, and, and what happened at three impacted sites. And what that does is it just brings honesty, integrity, and authenticity. It just hasn't been out there for kids to date about 9-11. It really brings the day to life for kids so they can never forget and want to learn more. So we also created all of this material so children can learn about the events of the day while they're also learning academic skills, and this is a major differentiator, okay? It's really important because we want kids learning about history while we're also setting them up for success in the future and ensuring that future generations are college and career ready we believe that starts in kindergarten. So just to give you a for example about what that means. Within our K-12 curriculum, kids will be learning um, and they'll be reading and writing. They're going to be answering questions using details that they're going to gain from multiple sources of information as well as prior knowledge. They'll be comparing events on the same day from multiple people, reading historical text. They'll be socially interacting, collaborating with their peers, speaking and listening, engaging uh, in collaborative discussions. That will help with historical recall. We put heart and soul into 9-11 in a way that nobody's done before. And we did this in a really loving and emotive way. And I believe that this material is going to move kids in a way that's going to stay with them, not in a way that's going to traumatize them. 
not in a way uh, that's, that's going to make it hard for them to understand or be scary in any way. It's going to move them in a way that's going to stay with them, that they're going to want to know, learn more, and in a way that's informative, not too detailed, in a way that's really going to pull on their heartstrings and make them connect with the people and, and the witnesses to history that we're going to bring into their lives. So I'm really excited about what we're going to educate kids with because I really believe that to deprive children of educating them about 9-11 is to deprive them of the world around them. 9-11 is everywhere. It's when you walk in an airport, when you turn on a TV, it's in all these television broadcasts, right? It's when you drive up to a federal building, you can't. It's everywhere. They have to learn about it so they can understand the context in the world they're living in. And we did it in a way that is age-appropriate and in a way that makes it really easy for educators. So I'm really excited about it. Well, when I was doing my research, and I have to uh, interject here because my co-host for today, my guest co-host, dropped out a little bit, and he's back on here. Uh, my guest co-host today is former Florida, uh, a congressman out of the great state of Florida, Ted Yoho. Uh, but, Ted, w- after 9-11, uh, certain legislations were put into in effect that the kids today don't understand what freedoms we gave up and what liberties we had, what what freedom of movement, as, as, as Christy was mentioning about, now you're going through the airport, you have the TSA doing a pat-down, you can't walk into a federal building without surrendering your cell phone and making sure you're unarmed. And so many things have changed in our life over these last 21 years because of 9-11. No, Annie, they have, and and that's the thing. And, Christine, number one, I can tell you're very passionate about what you're doing, and I commend you for what you're doing because I've been there. I think we all remember what our generation will always remember where we were on 9-11. The important thing that you're doing uh, with your mobile um, 9-11 display, uh, the educational things you're doing, is you're keeping that in current history. And we've all heard that if you don't remember your past, you're going to repeat it. And um, mm-hmm. we've just got to make sure that we keep that in the forefront and never waver from that. And what Annie was talking about, you know, when I was uh, when I was in Congress, I would talk to a lot of high school students, and it was really interesting because we talked about, you know, how we're losing freedoms, but yet we don't know. And it's the analogy of a, you can cook a frog two ways: you can throw them in a boiling hot of water or a pot of water, or you can put them in a pot of water and turn up the heat slowly. It doesn't matter to the frog because either way he gets cooked. And when we start giving up freedoms, um, and I asked the students, I said, how many people have flown on a plane? Well, they have pretty much everybody raised their hand. And then I uh, said, how many of you remember flying before TSA? None of them knew it. Mm-hmm. And I said, it never was like that. You could go on a plane, you could do whatever you wanted to, and not not ever whatever you wanted to, but you could go on there and you could go up to the cockpit. And it's it's a small example of the liberties and freedoms that we lose. That's why what you're doing to keep this as a reminder for future generations is so important that we do that. 
It's so true, Ted. And I have to tell you, too, one of the other reasons I feel like we we need to keep this alive for kids and make sure they understand is because people are still dying from that day. You know, the World Trade Center Health Program has 118,000 people that are still a part of it, and 72,000 of those people have more than two certifications of health issues tied to that day. We're still losing people to that day. So a lot of people sure talk are. about, yeah, we sure yeah. are, you know, and it's like, you know, we, t- we talk about our history and, and that day, but we're still losing people to that day. So I, we also make that point really clear to kids as well, and, and that they can't believe it when they hear it. We're still losing people. It, it stuns them. You know, so I, I, you know, that's a, a big part of it as well. It's going to be with us for a while. Well, I, well, I hear the background noise. But anyway, uh, Christy, I don't know if you were aware, but I start each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And because this is 9-11 weekend, I did the dedication to the 21st anniversary of, of 9-11. And that was a point I, I made that we are still losing people. Not only from just 9/11, but from the wars that followed after it because of 9/11. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's it's civilians, it's first responders, and it's also our military men and women. The toll that our nation has taken because of that day, and because we it's, never it's listened to the warnings that came before. Yeah. Absolutely. So, it's so. It is amazing that the, that people don't realize the consequences of that single day. Yeah, or they talk about them as distinct and separate parts, right? They might talk about the military portion of it, you know, and, and fail to leave, leave and fail to mention the part that we lost over 7,000 people in the war on terror, right? Or they might talk about the 2,977 people we lost on 9-11 or fail to mention the people we're still losing today, right? Or they might talk about just 9-11 illness and fail to mention the 2,977 people and the the more than 7,000 people we lost in the war on terror. But it's the whole thing. Right, So it's the whole picture, and it's painting that whole picture. And let's stop talking about the pieces and the parts. Let's talk about the whole picture, and let's make sure that kids are aware of this. And it's not just a day in in history. It's a day that's still taking lives. And let's make sure that's really clear. And let's make sure they understand uh, all of the things they see around them in their life and, and the reasons they are the way they are is because of that day. And they're shocked to hear it and learn it um, when, when they do start to understand it. And then they, they start to ask the question, why did I not know this before? And I just say, let's just focus on you're learning it now, and you're going to learn a lot more as you go forward. Let's not even focus well, I on make... the reasons why you haven't learned it before. Let's just focus on going forward. Well, I want to mention that with that, uh, the Institute, the 9-11 Institute, there's a series of children's books that a certain author, uh, oh, what's her name? <laughs> it's, I think it's called Discovering Heroes Book Series. Oh, what's the name of that author? Who is that? 
Uh, that would be me. Yes. Uh, yes, in fact, yeah, the Discovering Heroes series. There are three books. It's a trilogy about 9-11. Um, and the books are a true telling of how the stories unraveled in my family. Uh, nonfiction stories. My dad was a 9-11 first responder uh, who was not working that day, but raced to get there when he heard what happened. Uh, and, and many years later, it was his grandchildren who weren't learning about it in school uh, and how the stories started to be told in our family. And in the first book, My Buddy's a Hero and I Didn't Even Know It, his grandchildren learned for the first time that their grandfather was a part of a, a group of people who helped to rescue the last man out alive from the ruins of the World Trade Center. They didn't even know it until they started asking questions at the dinner table. Uh, the second book is Remembering Heroes, and in the second book, they go to uh, the Rescue Company One Firehouse. It's part of the Fire Department oh, of New wow. York City's Rescue Company. Yep, yeah. a company that lost 11 men that uh, their grandfather was a part of and a lieutenant there. Uh, and in that book, they learn about uh, the concept of everyday heroes. They learn more about the 11 men and the many dear friends that their grandparents lost that day. They see everyday heroes in action. They learn about the nearly 3,000 people that lost their lives. And they see when they see the everyday heroes in action, they see a reenactment of what happened in uh, after 9-11 and in the days that followed, how people lined the streets, uh, lined West Street to thank first responders as they left and entered Ground Zero. Uh, and, and they learn about how touching that was for their grandfather and for the first responders who experienced that. That was really special. You know, here are all these people who just wanted to help, and they probably thought they weren't doing much by standing on the side of a road with a sign that said, thank you, God bless our heroes, God bless America. Um, and, you know, here it really restored strength in our first responders who were just stunned when they came out. And my father cries, you know, brings tears to his eyes and really makes his voice shake when he talks about it today. And here they got to see people reenacting it to this day they do it they reenact it to this day so they got to see that play out uh and that's in the book remembering heroes the third book is 9-11 courage and tributes and so throughout this trilogy the kids are learning more about 9-11 uh and in the third book they they really want to understand even more uh they're eager to learn more and so their grandparents take them to very special places uh where people where they learn to pay tribute and honor people that were lost. Uh, and they, they visit many special places. They learn how people are honored. They learn that our nation's largest water evacuation took place on 9-11, and it only took place mm -hmm. because everyday heroes answered the call for help from the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, and, you know, they learn that 9-11 is continuing to take lives, and Many people have died from 9-11-related illnesses, and they learn that their grandparents have 9-11-related health illnesses. So the, the trilogy is really, how, is really how the stories unraveled um, in truth in my own life, um, and it's really how 
the three grandchildren their journey of understanding and learning 9-11 through the loving words of their grandparents. And the oh, books now powerful. are part of... Yeah, and then books now are part of the, the Tunnel Towers 9-11 Institute, and they'll be solely distributed through the Institute, uh, and the curriculum that we have is uh, we have individual curriculum units for each book, uh, K-2 to and 3-5 to units for each book available through the Institute. You know, a lot of people don't even know what happened the day after 9-12, how people opened up their homes, how perfect strangers gave everyone else a ride just so they can get out of the city back to their homes. Um, yeah. My sister-in-law being one of them, she was in, um, she was working for Merrill Lynch out of the towers. As a matter of fact, hers was disaster management. That was her job. <laughs> they, that's why wow. they moved over into New Jersey. Um, but we couldn't find her for several days. A family just took her in and let her stay there until she was able to find a way out of the city. You know, story after story, you hear about that, how people came out of the woodwork and set up t- food tables to feed the first responders around the clock, mm-hmm. uh, bringing blankets and coffee and whatever else they needed, even just a shoulder to cry on. Uh, the it was signs that were put up of the mystic, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, even st- every single state, the people were lining up to take people in or to give blood or to send donations of food, clothing, blankets, whatever we could lay our hands on to send upwards. It was at one time, uh, I shouldn't say Pearl Harbor, not, but after, it was the one time that we in modern day saw a nation come together and it didn't matter who you were, where you came from, what your political persuasion or sexual persuasion, it didn't matter. It mm-hmm. nothing mattered but helping. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. We came together in ways we never imagined our nation could. And we came together to help one another. Uh, and, and I have to say, the, the message that I take away, and, and one big message I think is a great message for kids, or if there are a couple that I'll share, is on our darkest day, goodness outshined the darkness. And, and I can say that goodness prevailed because that goodness carried on even today. I mean, you just look at the goodness that carries on through the foundation and others like it. We, we carried that goodness forward because that goodness is what gave us hope to get through that. And that goodness is... That goodness is always going to carry is always going to carry forward. So, I say, you know, the lessons from that day too is even on your worst day, you can be your best. And the people that we lost, they were their best that day. You think you look at the stories of heroism. They ran to the danger. They ran to help others. You know, they didn't. They could have made other choices, and they didn't. They were the best. And even in your darkest hour, you could be your best. I think those are extraordinary messages for children. And I, I know that we, we only came together and we can say today we, that goodness prevailed because we came together. So as a whole, we are better than we are individually. And those are great messages for kids to learn. And I, I say that wholeheartedly because I lived it, and anybody who lived it, 
uh, and anybody I talk to that lived it says exactly the same thing. So um, these are all messages that kids need to hear and need to understand because national tragedies tend to have these themes that carry through them, right? So uh, there will be, unfortunately, other national tragedies, and these themes carry through. Um, but it is the banding together and the bringing together of people and helping of one another that that shines light through the darkness, and that darkness carries on today. That is the legacy of 9-11, that goodness outshined the darkest day our nation experienced. Uh, I mean, these were civilians. Civilians were attacked. That had never happened on American soil, and I pray that it never happens again. No, we pray that too. But through the Tunnel to Towers, <clears throat> through your 9-11 Institute, you also have something, uh, the Student Athlete Advocates. These are uh, Tunnel to Towers ambassadors. You're getting young kids to get the message out. Not just, you know, the adults, the people that were there, but these are people that post on the social in, uh, network and they are mm-hmm. ambassadors for Tunnel to Towers. Tell us about that, and what's the criteria for that? Yeah, and they also have ties to 9-11. Many have ties to 9-11 as well. So we have, you know, one of the the great legend of the fire department of New York City was Ray Downey. This is a man who helps, who, who really is the reason for special operations command in the fire department of New York City. He was the reason for it starting, uh, his, right? He was, he, his legacy is that. Uh, his granddaughter is one of our student amba- student athletes. She she's in college now, pr- playing sports, um, and she now uh, is able to be part of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation and to support the Tunnel to Towers Foundation and be one of our ambassadors sharing the message of goodness and sharing the message of the foundation with her peers and, um, and people who follow her and be able to share her story and her connection to 9-11, which is both educating people about 9-11, but it's also educating people about the foundation and carrying the caring forward of goodness. Uh, she's able to do that and be one of our ambassadors. Uh, she's in a Division One school. Um, she's a great athlete. She also does well in school. Uh, she meets re- requirements and criteria. We have those posted on our website. And um, she also has an incredible tie to 9-11. And, um, and she now represents the foundation as one of our ambassadors. And is just it's a beautiful story. And re- she represents us so well. Um, and I think it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful telling, I think, of um, of the 9-11 story, also of the foundation, of the doing of good. And I think it's it's a great telling of Ray Downey's legacy. Yeah, it, And she's it, just it, one example. It's beautiful. Yes. And you've got example after example after example. But uh, <clears throat> I noticed tonight there's a little special event going on. Uh, there's a, a boxing event or something, NYPD, FD. 
It is Saturday night. So Saturday night on the eve of the 21st anniversary of America's darkest day, First Responders Are Uniting, organized by NYPD Boxing Boxing for Kids, um, Staten Island, uh, where the Ferry Hawks play at Staten Island University Hospital um, Arena. We uh, are going to have first responders duking it out and they're doing it on behalf of kids and on behalf of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, um, and it's organized, like I said, for, for, by NYPD Boxing, um, and Pat Russo is uh, the person who has spearheaded all of this for, um, um, for the kids, and I have to tell you, he's just a remarkable man, and it's a remarkable organization um, that that is is doing all of this and they're doing it uh to, like I said to help kids uh to help kids in troubled areas and to help kids uh to raise awareness uh to law enforcement to familiarize them with law enforcement and what happens through this program is kids wind up um, becoming close with the law enforcement officers at a young age, um, and many wind up becoming part of law enforcement as a result. And in fact, I think uh, all of the members of the boxing team right now actually were part of this kids in boxing program, um, and are now um, part of the team. So it's been it's been a program I think that's been around for a few decades, and it's just an ex- another example of a beautiful story, uh, a beautiful story of everyday heroes, uh, an everyday hero like Pat Russo, who uh, you know who kicked this off and has taken it this far, and now is uniting first responders across all of New York and bringing them together on the eve of America's darkest day to be able to raise more money for kids in boxing and to be able to raise money for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. It's, it's extraordinary, you know, the, the, the kindness and uh, the big hearts of people just never ceases to amaze me. Well, spoiler alert, because every single time I went to one of these matches, us against FD, we kicked butt. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think they tell a different story. I don't know, though. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we <kick> their butt. <laughs> but it's a great program. I mean, the kids in boxing program is just extraordinary. I mean, you, you, hear, the, you hear the reason why it was created we, we, and we, how long it's been around. It's awesome. Go ahead, Ted. Ted? Did I lose Ted again? Oh, dear Lord, I think I lost my co-host again. There must be a storm oh, no. going on down in Florida. Uh, oh, he'll, he'll, he'll slip back in. Uh, listen, um, I noticed that Carrie Underwood did a concert, and she donated a portion of her, her ticket sales to you guys. It was the uh, Denim and Rhinestones tour. Yes, in fact, the tour kicks off in October, and so every ticket sold, a dollar comes to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Um, so generous. And the tour actually kicks off in October, so people can still buy tickets. It's, it's in over 40 states, so that's something that Carrie Underwood is doing, and we couldn't be more thrilled. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, now, you're also doing a lot of other events that people can participate in, such as the 5K Run and Walk uh, that's coming mm-hmm. up on September 25th. 
Uh, then there's the climbing the stairs um, that you do. And there's so much good work. So it's not just looking at the first responders. There's so many other things you do, as like helping pay mortgages. Uh, right now, you've paid out 22 over 16 states. It's tremendous, a tremendous amount of good work that the charity does. Yeah, absolutely. So we have our we have a national run walk and climb series that has over 80 events a year. So across America, there are over 80 events happening that people can participate in um, to help remember the heroes of America, uh, heroes of 9/11, heroes in local communities. Uh, so that those are events that happen locally, and and those are ways that people can really honor people in their in their local communities. Uh, like like you said, the mortgages. We announced that we're paying off 21 mortgages for the 21 anniversary, 21st anniversary of 9/11. Uh, so that's happening, um, and we tend to do that for. You'll see us do that for July 4th. You'll see us do that for 9/11. You'll see us do that on Veterans Day, etc. There, there is always something happening at Tunnel to Towers, and in addition to like the National Run, Walk, and Climb series, we have dozens of golf outings that happen all over America, across cities, across the nation. Um, we have that big, like the, the event that you mentioned in New York City, our, our signature event is the um, the event that happens on the last Sunday in September, and that's the New York City uh, 5K uh, run, walk, run and walk that happens, but uh, where 30,000 people participate. But that's one, that's one event, but we have them all over the country, like like I said, so people can remember and honor the heroes in their own communities. Uh, across this nation, so it's really extraordinary. And and in addition to our own events, you know, people, superstars like Carrie Underwood and others um, will, will donate a dollar from ticket sales or recognize us in so many different ways. It's just it's really it's really extraordinary how how large the foundation has become, how um, how recognized we are, and just how um, just how much we've grown since the foundation started, and um, and really how much people do for us. It's really it's really nice to know that people not only stand up and support heroes, but they know who we are, and they're going to always be here. People leave their you know, want us to be part of their legacy, um, remember us in their wills. We have somebody who left um, acres of land to us in Land O'Lakes, Florida, and we're building a community of more than 110 homes, of about 110 homes, so that our program recipients can live in the first of its kind, a community of our program recipients, so that people can live amongst other people who've gone through the similar tragedies in their lives so their kids can be raised together. So they can, that through understanding one another, you know, they can help to heal one another. It's really extraordinary. It's the first community of its kind, and we hope it's the first of many. Well, unless you know, they've, they've stood in the shoes of that first responder or that military person, they couldn't understand and um, I'm fortunate that here where I live now in South Carolina, there is a location that, you know, it's a compound, it's also firing range and everything, that you can go and they understand. 
You know, you don't have to mm-hmm. basically say anything. They just know. And to exactly. feel that you're among people that have experienced the same thing. You know, or anyone can talk about, oh, yeah, you, you watch it on TV and they run into the gunfight. You don't know what it takes to do that. You run into a burning building. You don't know what it takes to do that. Most people mm-hmm. run the other way, but we run forward. And it's good to know that there is an area that we can go and it's, it's like it's almost like a safe space for us. That Absolutely. there's no judgment, there's no None. judgment, but there is help to heal, and that's Absolutely. really important because there's a record number of suicides going on of military personnel as well as first responders, the highest number ever seen. And unless we help these men and women that are still out there serving or have served, then there will be no one left to protect us or to save us. We have to help them. It's awful. It's terrible what's happening right now. We have to help, and we have to do everything we can to help them. Now, if people want to get involved, then they go to T2T.org, correct? Absolutely. T2T.org. All right. And you have on there a calendar that lists different events across the country. So they can go through the calendar and say, oh, wait a minute, I'm outside of Pittsburgh, and you're going to be here uh, oh, you've got a softball game going on next weekend. Uh, there is a sixth annual tournament next weekend. See, I, paid, I do my yeah. homework. <laughs> <laughs> you really do. You did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> and he does great a great job. job. If you're in Kentucky, you're going to the State Fair. Though so you've got a Never Forget Mobile going to the Kentucky State Fair on the 28th. And they can go to the calendar and see where they are, or they can even travel to where you are to participate in your events. Absolutely. Absolutely. The calendar is the best way to to check out where we are, what's going on in your area, or where you might want to travel to to, do, to get involved in, in an event that's upcoming. And on your website, if you are a parent of a student or you are that athlete student, you can go onto the website, fill out the application to see if they qualify to become one of the ambassadors. Uh, see what the what is required of them to become one of the ambassadors. Uh, they can also go to that website and pick up the curriculum that you put on the 9-11 Institute or get your books by just filling out the little form, and it's really easy, pain-free. Uh, they can make a donation through there. They can see how they can volunteer. It is a one-stop shop for everything there. <laughs> it sure is. It sure is, and and I can't. I just would love to say too, uh, if I can, I, I just want to thank everybody for their support. I mean, the the support that we get across this country, it never ceases to amaze me. People are so in, incredibly generous, and we wouldn't be able to do all of the things that we do that are so special without all the support of the people in this great country. The people are so generous and so kind, and they're the only reason we're able to do all. All of the things that we do so we would be nothing without all of the people of this country show, who show their support every minute of every day so thank you no thank you for for looking out for the rest of us and thank you for all the hard work you guys do and thank you frank for starting this organization it wasn't easy and he took it off the ground and he he hit the road running and he sure wow. did yeah he and sure did Sunday is the 21st anniversary of 9-11, and uh, 
God bless you and everyone that you work with. I'm telling people, you've got to go to Tuttle to Towers Foundation at T2T.org and get involved. Learn more. You know, you don't have to be a kid to get the curriculum book to learn, so get the high school book. You never know. You just might find out that you didn't know about before. Yeah, and a lot of people, you'd be surprised how many adults tell me how much they learned from my books. It's about time. <laughs> it's about time. It's a good thing. That means they're reading to their children. Yeah, it's great. I, I love it. It's great. A lot of people. I, I, I have to tell you, every day I meet people in the ni- that have their own. There are so many 9-11 stories. We could, I could never learn them all. I learn so much every day just talking to people about their stories. So there are so many stories out there to learn. I could never learn them all. So every day we're all learning, and that's, that's really what's special about all of it. So um, we should all just keep learning and keep hearing more stories and stay connected. That's what we should all do, and that's what I endeavor to do. Well, you're doing a fantastic job, Christy. God bless you for that hard work you do. I mean, thank I can't you, even God thank you. you and the T2T.org enough. Well, amen. Ted, you Thanks so you much. Mind? Thank you to you and Ted. Thanks so much, Ted. Can I just add one thing there before you go on? I know you're in a hurry, Annie. Is, you know, we all came together on 9-11, and we stayed together as Americans for a period of time, but... Over time, things start to evaporate. That feeling goes away, and it comes back on 9-11 again when we celebrate the, the survivors and the, uh, the, that tragic incident that happened to our country so that we remember those things can happen here. And the affinity groups like the first responders, the policemen, the fire department, and so on, those are the ones that hold that together so tight. And then the survivors of the, of the 9-11 and, the, of course, the ones that, um, you know, we honor that passed away. It's so important we do that. And, again, I just want to commend you for what you did. My daughter was in the Coast Guard up in New York, not when 9-11 happened, but she was up there, and she organized with the Coast Guard to have the largest participation they ever had in the Tunnels to Tower run. And uh, I think they went from 200 to maybe 400 uh, people that ran in that, and it was just a great tribute. And so, again, people like you that are keeping that out there, and we, we appreciate it. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that, and thank her for that as well. That's extraordinary. I love it. That's fantastic. Well, Christy, it has been a pleasure having you on, and you're welcome to come back anytime. Anything you got new going on, you guys got my number. Just give me a shout, and we'll get you back on. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for keeping the messages out there, for getting the messages out there. Uh, thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Oh, likewise. Well, if you Have run, a great day. Well, you if too. you run across the PBA president, Patty Lynch, just tell him I said hi because I came out of the same command. He was in my squad. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, Pat, Pat's a yes. big friend of ours. Absolutely. We'll do. <laughs> Well, tell him you said That's hi. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I will do that. Absolutely. That's terrific. Okay. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. All right. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Check out T2T.org, the Tunnels to Tower Foundation, T2T.org. Get yourself involved. What a great segment, Ted. What a great segment. I really was. No, I'm here. You can tell her passion her passion for what she's doing and it just it just exudes over the phone yeah 
And I, 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 she was breaking down in tears. You can hear it when she was talking about the children's books tell. that she writes and uh, yeah. how she personally went through it. It's her own personal story, a story of her family and her kids. And it's, it's wonderful that she was able to take that and put it to a purpose that could, could uplift and to teach at the same time. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, we've got about 10 minutes before our next guest. Um, there's so much to talk about, Ted. And uh, All right. I want you to break down uh, the president's speech he gave uh, recently on the steps of Philadelphia. Holy cow. I, I, <laughs> that would probably take you half an hour, but, we'll, but we'll, we'll try to break it down. From the backdrop. And I had to replay the tape three times as I watched them walk up the steps on that backdrop. It was freaky. I mean, talk about a stage set. And uh, what was it? Was it in um, Oh Town Hall wrote an article saying it was reminiscent of the Nuremberg trial setting where they had the two huge flags with the two soldiers standing there and they come up these steps. If anyone watched the trial of Nuremberg, the movie is just freaky. I mean, whoever thought that, I don't know. And next thing he goes, he calls us Nazis, and you got a Nazi backdrop, really? No, I agree with you. And when you looked at him, and it, it reminded me of Hitler in the plaza, that big arena that they amphitheater they made, where you saw the millions of people out there. And his rhetoric was the most toxic I have ever heard from a president of the United States in my 67 years. For him to go after, and he's done this before, if you weren't vaccinated, you're the one killing people. If you're not vaccinated, you're spreading the virus. And he he would go on, and he just he keeps doing that over and over again. And then he he yelled in there that he was going to get rid of the ARs, he said since then. Um, make no mistake where this guy is coming from. And it's not just him, the, the Marxist Democratic Party. That They're the Marxists that hide behind the Democratic Party. And you're seeing what they're going to do, the mandates coming out of them. You know, you go back to COVID, you go um, to the $600 they wanted to investigate in your bank accounts. Um, one of the reasons they got the IRS in there, um, to get rid of the student loans. What he is doing is dividing this nation between – you know, what he wants to call the MAGA extremists. And those are the people that stand up for God, country, uh, family, the flag, the Constitution. Those are the ones that are fighting to preserve the constitutional republic that we have. The group he's talking to and that's supporting him is the group that wants to bring down the constitutional republic that has been so successful in this world and create a Venezuelan... Nicholas Maduro type socialism country and it will not survive in this country and we cannot let it and there's ways that we can uh, fight back on that well first way we do is at the ballot box this November and just we're talking about what two months away not even uh, where the ballot box is really 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 important Uh, that's the first step the second step is to hold those we elect to office, you know, responsible. Don't let it just fly by you. That's what they're hoping, that we'll let stuff just fly by us and not pay attention. It's everything as usual. Uh, 
which is, uh, again, what Fred was writing about in his book. We cannot sit idly by. We need to, to take the nation back peacefully through the election process, through all the procedural and legal processes we possibly can. Okay. Did I lose Ted again? No. No, I'm here. <laughs> oh, no. um, I had a delay on my thing here. Oh, um, all right. No, it is. And it is something that, and, and Fred did bring this up, and you brought it up again. And what that is, is the American people need to wake up. Uh, we talked about the austerity measures. I can remember when I was in Congress and Social Security got cut back maybe um, uh, one, one or two percent. Um, because it was a, a COLA decrease, because there was a decrease in inflation, so things went backwards. There was the amount of anger that we had uh, of constituents calling our office saying how this is outrageous, it should never happen. That was 1%. When austerity measures come and they're forced on us because of the ineptness of Congress, and I have to take blame because I was there and I could not do the things I wanted to change, um, and you start going back four, five, six, seven percent in somebody's benefit check, Social Security, Medicare, uh, food stamps. Uh, there will be there will be riots in the street we've never seen in this country, and the only way we're going to fix that is by educating the electorate, like you're doing on your program, Annie, and I commend you. The other thing is empower the American people or remind them of the power they have to do term limits on these bums that have been up there. And they just talk about the rhetoric of what we're going to fix. And uh, we're going to fix this. And, you know, Congress, we're going to hold them accountable. They say we're going to hold them accountable every election cycle, yet nobody's held accountable. And people need to wake up and we need to throw these people out of office. It's not their office. It's our office. We, the people, until we do that, I don't see things getting better in this country, and they'll get worse until a point where people are tired of it. Well, what we have right now is a family feud in the Republican Party, especially between Mitch McConnell and the National Republican Senatorial Committee Chairman Rick Scott. I mean, if we're fighting among ourselves and we can't look towards the future saying, let's put the best candidate forward, Let's put the one that would get the job done. No, but it's going to be business as usual. We've got to get That's the establishment out. Yeah. We've yeah, got and, to get the and you know why out. they're you know why they're fighting amongst themselves, right? It's because there is no leadership. We are not we're looking at the next election cycle and how many members do we have to get to get the majority. What are you going to do once you get the majority? Kevin McCarthy, somebody told me he had a 60 or 90 point plan. And I said, that's too many. At this point in time in our country, that's too many. Give me five or six, you know, inflation, education, our debt, you know, the, uh, those kind of things. Uh, energy security, and this is one of the things that uh, Fred brought up, you know, putting back to the states. And I agree, education, food stamps, you know, I don't want to harp on food stamps, but Education, why is that a federal program? It was never supposed to be a federal program. Jimmy Carter brought it in. Ronald Reagan could have gotten rid of it. But he had uh, Bill Bennett, who was a Democrat at the time, um, told him he could fix it. Well, they didn't. But 
that should be at a state level, and the federal government should be the overseer. Say you need to make sure your kids are at these level, and on a nation level, track everybody to make sure we're progressing and getting better. The Department of Energy is one of those ones that uh, was set up to create an energy policy for the United States of America to be energy independent. It's never happened other than Donald Trump. And so repurpose that, that department. And until we get people focused in Washington on where America is going to be 25, 30, 50 years from now, there's going to be that infighting because they're all vying for the next position. You know, somebody wants to be the, P, the speaker, the majority leader, the majority whip. And I want somebody to say, I want you to win for America, not for a party. Now, that's the problem. You know, they're there to keep their seat. And the whole object is, is as soon as they get elected, they start fundraising every lunch hour, every day off. They're out there making those phone calls to fundraise. No, no. Just take the money out of it and maybe just represent the people. But that's not possible because of the way our electoral system has been set up. Well, the way it's evolved over the years. And, I mean, my ex-representative who got redistricted, she she sent it out the day after the election, after she got elected. We're behind on fundraising. We have to to raise more money. And that person does not even have a major Democrat running against her. But she's telling everybody she's behind. And... uh, it, it, it's sickening is what it is. It's pathetic. Um, and uh, it can be done without doing that and paying alms to the uh, Republican Party or the Democrat Party. Uh, you know, I hear so many of these members say, you know, they're over at the NRCC, which is a National Republican Congressional Committee, dialing for dollars, um, raising money for the party. And then they have the altar call on our side in the Republican party where um, the members that raise the most are usually not bashful and so they want recognition by the other members and so they'll call an altar call once a month all right who's got a who's got a check for the nrcc and you know they try to outdo each other i raised fifty thousand i raised a hundred thousand i raised two hundred thousand and they clap and they celebrate and i'm like what are you doing for your district you know what are you doing for the nation um you should be spending time there. And so I never did that. I never played that game. Well, that's the that's the problem. You know, you don't play the game, you don't get reelected. Uh, but wait a well, minute. Well, that's what you hear, <laughs> but we did well. And uh, we got bills passed. We got significant bills passed. And we I was on a, the a chairman of a committee, even though I didn't pay my dues and you know, I bucked the system, you know, from day one when I voted against Boehner. It's just there's people that go up there for a job, and we need to hire and elect people that want to go up for a cause, and we need to make sure that cause is preserving our constitutional republic like it has been handed to us so that we can pass it on for generations to come. And if they don't have that in their heart, throw them out. Well, hopefully we can do that in this election cycle. A little too late for me to get rid of Lindsey Graham, or as I call him, Lamesy Graham. <laughs> but once in a while, he does get things right. I have to admit, once he does, in a while, um, yeah, I, I keep not often, but once in a while, we'll give him that. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, but, but we can't. He's one that likes to talk a lot about what they're doing, 
um, you remember, uh, oh, uh, he was the attorney general. What was his name from Alabama? Jeff? Was it Jeff somebody? Jeff Sessions? Sessions. Yeah. <laughs> I was in a meeting. I was new, and we were talking about immigration, and he was saying, is this all right to say on your show? <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, we've got our next guest in. I want to welcome to the show well, from the Heritage here, Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> from the Heritage, I, I cut you off pretty quick, didn't I? You <laughs> sure Sarah did, Parshall. feel free to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get the name out. Sarah Parshall Perry, she's from the Heritage Foundation. She's the Senior Legal Fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Sarah, my guest co-host today is the one, the only, the infamous former congressman from the great sunshine state of Florida, Ted Yoho. So we're in good company here today. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Sarah, great to hear you. Yes, Sarah. It is. um, I have to uh, say, because uh, when I said, Tom, you're sending me someone, and he said he was sending me you, and I said, perfect, because I pulled your article up. And uh, the last time you were on, we were talking about uh, school choice and religious discrimination, the Carson versus yes. Macon case. And we were discussing what the possible outcome was. And I'm surprised everything you and I talked about and everything you pointed out is just hit it spot on. Wow. We got well, I'll tell you what, it's certainly back in the, uh, it's certainly back in the news now. Um, what we're hearing based on this unprecedented ruling from this New York State Supreme Court judge is something that should be pretty easily overturned based on what the Supreme Court just determined in Carson v. Macon, which, as you know, kind of was, was, was one of the last of the entire term. It was one of the big cases. It was religious liberty. It was education. And again, this was kind of a blockbuster docket for the court on this past few months. I think the second term was something that we're not entirely likely to see again, at least from that perspective of sort of breadth and depth of socially um, sort of, you know, I would say hot button issues, particularly so in light of what we just heard from Fox today about the Dobbs leak potentially being identified in the next coming weeks, according to Justice Gorsuch. But this particular case, Annie, is one that we were talking about um, earlier in our legal center, and it centers on a particular decision that determines that Yeshiva University, which is the flagship Jewish Orthodox University in the nation has just been determined by a state Supreme Court judge not to be entitled to a religious exemption to anti-discrimination law. So we're not in this case talking about federal laws like Title VII or Title IX, which do exempt religious individuals or religious organizations. This is New York's human rights law. So that's important here because it says explicitly that if an organization organizes under, for example, New York's education law, and it creates a charter that is secular as opposed to religious in nature, which, for example, a church or a synagogue might do, then it's not entitled to a religious exemption, even if it happens to be providing religious instruction. Now, that's 
quite a stretch on the part of the New York State Supreme Court because, as you mentioned at the beginning, Annie, we just learned in Carson v. Macon that the Supreme Court doesn't care about any distinction between religious status for an organization and the religious use to which public money might be put, for example, for religious instruction. But it seems as though this particular Supreme Court is going to find a way and has found a way to thread the needle and force an Orthodox Jewish university that keeps all Jewish traditions, requires classes in Hebrew, requires all of the observations of Jewish holidays, requires classes that are directed specifically for a deeper understanding of Judaism, that they will be subjected to a violation of New York's human rights law unless they recognize an LGBT student group on campus. So Yeshiva has filed what's called an emergency application to the Supreme Court, and it's desperate for help. It's requested an injunction to pause this decision from the state Supreme Court or, in the alternative, to take up the entire case on the merits on what's called a petition for review or a petition for certiorari. We're actually hoping that the latter is the choice, that the entire justices will decide that this is a case worthy of further clarification and that this, in the end, ultimately presents an impermissible burden on this organization's religious freedom. Man, if there's, if they'll find any way to twist everything around to fit the narrative they have. You, there's they, no question. They create, there's... They create the, the, the solution to where there is no problem. Which is, it exactly should be no it. problem. It, it, yeah. it should be no problem at all. And for a religious organization like Yeshiva University, they organize under an educational charter. So New York has an education law under which they organize because, of course, they are a four-year institution, higher education institution. And because of that particular law, they are not subject, according to the New York State Supreme Court, they're not subject to religious liberty protections because they said, well, you've organized under a secular charter and you offer secular degrees, whether that's history or philosophy or math. And because of that, the opinion that came down in this case determined that they were not religious enough, that they hadn't followed the proper organizational structure so regardless of what they taught, regardless of how religious they thought they were, and regardless of the fact, and this is a big distinction, that they were making a religious decision, which all of the parties, including the Gay Pride Alliance, agreed was a religious decision. Despite all that, they're not going to be protected from anti-discrimination law. What happened to the part of the First Amendment where it says, nor prohibit the free expression thereof? That's a great question, and I will tell you this, uh, this Supreme Court, in balancing, as you know, the two religion clauses of the First Amendment, one is the free exercise clause, and one is the um, establishment clause, and the two of them have to work in concert with one another. We don't want the government to establish a religion. That is, in fact, what the foundling nation was actually fleeing when it came to the United States, the freedom to be able to worship 
as they wanted and to leave a state-sponsored religion. But we want people to exercise those individual beliefs, those precepts, to the greatest extent possible, as long as it doesn't force the government to recognize and approve of it. And here, this is so simply, I think, a determination of what the Supreme Court already held in Carson, but also what we know they've said about religious liberty specifically within the context of education. Because remember, we also saw another religious liberty and education case in Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, the case of the coach who took a knee to pray at the 50-yard line. And again, they have said in the balance between free exercise and establishment worries, we really want to make sure the balance is tipped in favor of free exercise. And between the three of us on this call, it is predominantly because they want to avoid what I think we're we are precipitously close to, and that's an authoritarianism when it comes to government in private, personal life. I think we're headed in that direction now. Well, I want to switch a little bit here because there's another case you wrote about recently, and that's Williams v. Kincaid. Uh, this was coming out of um, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, they had to twist themselves worse than playing a game of Twister. I mean, they had to go convoluted. I mean, I was reading this. I'm going, how the heck do you come to this conclusion? But they did, that if you have a gender dysphoria, uh, you seem to feel that you're in the wrong body, that falls underneath the American with Disabilities Act, that they should be given public accommodations. Well, public accommodations means if I walk out on the sidewalk and I call he a she when it's actually a she being a he or whatever it is, I'm in trouble. Well, I'll give you a perfect example of how that plays out in real time, Annie. We're looking at now future accommodations for all places of public service and Obviously, there are multitudes, goods and services provided, openly accessible to the public. Think of movie theaters, restaurants, um, small businesses, large businesses, bakeries. government buildings, bakeries, of course. We've seen <laughs> the wedding vendor cases, all of which fall under the umbrella of public accommodations. They are also subject to the Americans with Disabilities Act, the federal civil rights law, that says if you receive so much as a dollar of federal funding, you must make accommodations to individuals who possess one of a various number of handicaps. And that means most likely what we're going to start seeing if this precedent holds, we're going to start seeing bathrooms, for example, opened up to individuals who feel themselves to be one way, even though biologically they are the other way. Think of what Target did with its bathrooms and was five years ago apparently ahead of the jurisprudential curve on this. But this particular decision coming from Judge Diana Motz, who's in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and it was a, it was a split panel. It was a divided panel. It was two to one. And I will say that the dissenting judge wrote really a, a brilliant um, dissent 
But here's how she figured out how to cram this in. And this is the first decision we've ever seen in 30 years of the Americans with Disabilities Act. This is the first time we've seen it, but here's how she found the loophole. The ADA explicitly excludes in its own terminology gender identity disorders. Now, if I hear gender identity disorder, I, of course, think gender (laughs) dysphoria, flip sides of the same coin. Naturally, if you have a gender identity disorder, you have dysphoria about the gender, the biological sex with which you are born. However, she took a little bit of history and ran pell-mell with it, determining that at the time of the ADA's passage, there was no gender dysphoria because we only (laughs) had gender identity disorder, they would exclude that. But now because the DSM has been altered, because as you know, the sciences are subject to wokeism as much as the liberal arts and letters are subject to wokeism as much as movies and government and politics are. The DSM, written by psychologists, Yes, absolutely. They've all changed it. Gender, gender dysphoria is now recognized as a separate condition. She said, well, because it didn't exist at the time, now we're going to include it in the ADA. So my guess is that once we see a different outcome in another circuit, and the Fourth Circuit used to be a very sort of conservative, originalist circuit. I argued once in front of the former chief judge there. And this has become a completely different um, ball of wax with this particular makeup on this panel. But once we see a differing opinion, say out of the Sixth Circuit or the Fifth Circuit, from which we've seen really good opinions in the past two to three years, then I'm thinking it's most likely headed to the Supreme Court, where they have had to time and again look back at a federal statute and say, What did Congress intend at the time? It had the opportunity to amend it. It didn't amend it. And therefore, we won't read into it some kind of an inclusion that was never there in the first place. I think that's what we're going to see here. Well, I'm just trying to figure out how she figures out out of the blue in the millennia of human existence that suddenly, just suddenly overnight, Gender dysphoria just popped up out of nowhere. It never existed ever before. Correct. Right. Just just trying to figure that one out. Ted, can you figure that one out? Well, you know, there's so many of those topics, they just kind of pop up. I still remember hearing America is rot with systemic racism uh, after a little incident I had with my colleague from New York. Um, Steny Hoyer said that, <laughs> and I'm like, I've never heard that term used that way. Uh, gender dysphoria, no. Yeah, I mean, that came up, and it goes back to who's pushing this narrative, and it's the Marxist Democrats that are pushing this narrative for division, divide and conquer. That's exactly <laughs> it. I've been, I've been doing a lot of sort of deep thinking in my small cubicle in Washington, D.C., about exactly why the progressives and the the modern-day Marxists are ultimately winning the war of language. And I had a colleague say to me, who's also an attorney, that we need to be calling things what they are. And in this particular case, 
we are recognizing something that is utterly made up. The gender dysphoria diagnosis didn't Made exist. up, absolutely. It is absolutely made up. And to say that it is different from gender identity disorder, which is having your cake and eating it too, there is no one on planet Earth who's read this opinion who wants to be a different sex other than they've been born that's going to say they have gender identity uh, disorder. They'll now call themselves gender dysphoric because that, of course, provides them accommodations under civil rights law. And that, I think, is just an untenable conclusion. Well, the consequences... Go ahead, ahead. Ted. Go ahead. No, no, I just... Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, did you follow that Dr. Brittany Cooper, uh, the professor out of Rutgers, with the stuff she said about white people need to be taken out, their birth rates are low, and that's good, we need to get rid of them? It does not surprise me in the least, Ted. I have to tell you, what we're hearing from all the sectors of the critical race theorists and the critical gender theorists are they're just flip sides of the same coin because, of course, we do know it's Marxism. And I've been studying a little history lately and trying to discern exactly what the origins are and why the popularity has increased so much. And it really began with Gramsci back at the turn of the early 20th century. Exactly. When went That's through exactly the Marx right. school. And I have to tell you, I think the fact that we're lapping it out, up without having done our history just indicates, among many, many other things, that our public education system is failing. And I say this as a mother of three public education students, two of whom need accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act for their autism. So let me tell you why Williams versus Kincaid rubbed me particularly the wrong way, because my sons who are in public education who need individual benefits and they need individual curricular assistances and program um, lifts to get through what is ordinarily much harder for them because of the way they're wired neurologically. This for me, is an opinion that's beyond the pale because these are individuals who ultimately don't feel very good about their biological sex, whereas my two sons were born precisely, by the way, as God wanted them to be born. They are wonderful young men, but they require accommodations. Just so to say that now we're looking at bathrooms opened up to an individual's gender identity because, of course, under the ADA, it's required, I think really is a dark day looming on the American political horizon. It really is. And, you know, that whole thing about, I think Annie was bringing it up, about they control the narrative. And I want to go back to this Professor Cooper. Um, She said, I I watched the podcast. She goes, we need to take the white people out. You know, we need to to kill them, those MRFers, is what she said. And then this um, uh, school caucus it is the Black Indigenous People of Color Faculty Caucus at Rutgers. Uh, says critical um, the aims of censorship. Uh, the uh, these people that are against her are critical race theory and the teachings of race theory. Racism threatened. They're threatened to silence conversation about the history of white supremacy and its current manifestation. Now, if we go back to the Jim Crow laws, the KKK and all that, 
Those are all Democrats. I mean, all that stuff was Democrats. And Joe Biden in a speech yep. said the Republicans want to bring back Jim Crow laws. Well, I believe it was the Republicans back in the 1800s with the Civil War that got rid of that stuff and fought for, you know, everything that the African-American race, the, the past slaves achieved was because yes. they fought against the Democrats and beat that. But that narrative, the Democrats own it like they're the ones that did it. To, to, to did all did all these good things, but yet they're the ones that did all the bad things, and they continue yeah. that narrative today. And the media is behind them, and Hollywood is behind them, one hundred percent. And it's time we've got to wake up. We don't have a lot of time. Well, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong. It was the Republicans in 1865 that put forth the first civil rights uh, legislation. It was the Democrats in 1898 that overturned yes. it. So. Correct. And then it was the Republicans that brought it back in the nineteen fifties and LBJ was the one that kept on killing it. And Republicans and conservatives that were the first abolitionists, many of whom were Christians of their own right and saw the inerrant work of every human being. Yeah, James Garfield was an adamant abolitionist. Uh, I mean he, he he abhorred slavery as a lot of the Republicans did. And, um, you know, the Democrats are saying we're the racist one. No, we're protecting the Constitution that has allowed for so many good things to happen to all races, including the white race even. <laughs> That's exactly well, right. Just, and I think what we're, what we're seeing now is just the turning of all of that goodwill upside down. And now we're creating within civil rights law whose purpose was equality, not equity, which is different, that's an unconstitutional <laughs> principle that violates the 14th Amendment. But equality, a level ground for all human beings with recognition of all human beings' worth and value. Well, Sarah, it has been such a pleasure to have you. We're down to our last four minutes of the show. And you know i love you to come back on as much as you'd like. Just tap Tom on the shoulder and say, come on, i got stuff to talk about. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Have a great weekend, Andy and Tom. And Sarah, you, too, the, you and the Heritage Foundation do a great job and keep it up. Uh, well, people can find her and other great people over at heritage.org. Ted, that's all we got for today. Uh, we do have for next week, I've got a new author, McDonald, who wrote about first responders. Uh, he's got a great book out. Uh, he'll be joining us. Um, Andrew Andrzejewski uh, from Open the Books should be coming back on also. Plus, we got Mark Tapscott from the, Herod, uh, from the Epic uh, Times and also Hill Faith. And we're another great guest from Heritage. So we're booking pretty fast already. You're doing a great job, man. And um, <laughs> I know you and Curtis will do well. And, you know, I, I know you probably have gotten Curtis's book, Truth Versus the Democrat Party. Um, he outlines uh, that very well, that argument. It is a good book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Ted, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, you're welcome to pop in whenever you want. We're always here on Friday. I appreciate it. You take care. And uh, we'll be gone for two and a half weeks in Vietnam. Leave Tuesday. Oh, travel safe then. God bless. May God be, go Thank with you. Thank you. Bye. All right. So that's all we got. We're going to leave the show with the song from my friend Gary Pecorella, Save America. So until then... I'm free for this land I've 
America They've no respect for her Or what matters most to you That's why I stand for the flag And I kneel at the cross More for the friends I have loved and lost And ask you I have loved and lost And that's true 